Radio Mano Papachango. I try not to get into reading a lot of the emails uh, that I, I get on on the air. If this isn't even air, is it? Podcasts aren't air. What is this? We talk about taping and being on the air. I don't know what the fuck this is. Anyway, I try not to get into talking about them too much because that brings more, and then I feel like I should you talk about them or read them and answer them, and you know I bitch about this every week. Um, but it's not. I don't, I don't bitch about it because I don't enjoy getting these emails and because they're not thought-provoking. I bitch about it because I do enjoy them and because they are thought-provoking and because I feel like there's something fucked up about getting so much heartfelt, sincere correspondence from people and not having the time to engage with them on the level that they deserve. But it's just a scale thing, you know? It's scale. It's fucked. Because so much of my life, and maybe this, maybe this relates to why I feel compelled to, to engage with people, so much of my life I was traveling, right? And um, I'd go to the post office, the post restant in whatever town I had told people I'd be in. And, and if there was a letter waiting for me, oh, man. That was like, you know, a cold beer for someone who'd been in the desert for a long time. It correspondence, thoughts, sincerity, depth, something you could read over and over again and and sort of hear it almost like the first time. Of course, part of this I'm talking about letters from women, you know, that I was involved with. But a lot of it's just friendship, just companionship, just someone reaching out and touching me on another part of the world you know there's something really meaningful and beautiful about that and my life has come to a place now where I've got an embarrassment of riches of people reaching out to me and sharing things with me and it is embarrassing because I don't have the time or focus or you know ability to respond in the way that they deserve so Pardon me, those of you to whom I've not responded, I can't, but I do read your emails and they touch me very much. Uh, Here's an example, okay? This is an email that came in about three minutes ago when I was firing up GarageBand to, to start working on this podcast. I saw there were a couple of emails, so I opened up. It takes a minute or something for GarageBand to load, so I thought I'd look at some emails, uh, see what that's what came in. And um, so here's an email. Just came in. Hi, Chris. I'm a 19 year old man. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now. I'm a big fan. Not sure why I feel the need to tell you this, but I'm a heroin addict. I started when I was 15 and got myself off it about a year later. I had a, about a year period without uh, without it, but then things got bad and I started up again. I'm now 
19 and I've been using it for a few years and it's uh, fucked my life up. I'm always broke. I have no motivation to do anything except get high. But I just made the decision to get off the smack and it's going to be the hardest thing I've ever done. Being the sneaky guy I am, I've managed to keep everyone around me in the dark about the addiction. So I guess I'm just sending this email so someone knows about the journey I'm about to embark on. Uh, My dad's not part of the family, and when I found your podcast, you kind of filled the father figure role in my life. Uh, Listening to your podcast has helped me improve the way I think about life, so in a way, your show helped me realize how stupid I'm being. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you, etc. I'll be listening to your podcast over the next few days as I get this shit out of my system. Thanks again for all the free entertainment. That is an email that deserves a heartfelt response, right? And so I hope the the guy who wrote it hears this and knows how touching it is. You're making the right move. And I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, who wishes they could do more to help. But for what it's worth... Uh, thank you for that email. I got another email from, uh, someone who's, uh, an artist and their career is starting to take off in uh, a pretty big way. And, um, his question was what the transition was like for me from private person to public person, you know? And, um, so he says, you're the only person I know who's moved into the public life. Did you change? Did you feel something like a calling, a knowing, uh, was the transition hard for you? Was it even a transition? Did you experience anything that felt like being drawn forward, a pull that you knew you had to follow? Um, Now, I'll try to talk about this a little bit because a lot of people have written about the same sort of thing, written to me, asking about it. And um, it's a hard thing to talk about because there's no way to talk about it without sounding like a dick. Um, So pardon me for sounding like a dick for the next few minutes talking about being famous. I'm not famous. I'm tiny little bit famous, you know, like... I've dipped my toe into the pool of fame, but, you know, Tom Cruise is like submerged in that shit, you know? So I feel like I might have some insight into it, but it's very, very um, minor. But the thing with me is that it didn't happen until I was already in my late 40s. Um, So I was who I was, you know, the the character was formed. And I think the danger, the real danger of getting into that kind of stuff when you're younger is that then your character forms around it. Um, And it's, it itself is nothing. So if your character flows around it and then solidifies, what you end up with is like an air bubble inside your character, this vacuum space where um, there's no substance. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to compensate from that for that emptiness. 
Um, fame is, in my experience, it's like, um, imagine if wine could only make you drunk in your mouth, right? Like once you swallow it, it, it no longer, the alcohol has no effect. Alcohol could only enter through your mouth, but wine tastes really good. So the danger is that you hold it in your mouth and you savor it. And that's what makes you drunk. If you just drink it and it just passes through your mouth on the way down and you just get that little, little flavor, little quick taste, then you'll be all right. And I think because the thing is, you can't deny it. You can't pretend Kevin Bacon can't pretend he's just a regular guy. He's not. Nothing about his life is regular. The way people respond to him, the way women respond to him. The way, you know, people are constantly giving him things. They want him to wear their $3,000 watches and they want him to do this. And, you know, your life is, as Kevin Bacon, not me, but your life is, you're surrounded by people just smiling at you all the time. Everyone wants you to be happy and comfortable and love them. And, you know, that's not real world, right? So that shit is, you know, you're in another world. And the minute you forget you're in another world and you start to think that that's reality, that's when you're fucked, right? Because that's when you are lost because your compass no longer points to true north. Your compass now has become part of the ego storm going on around you. So you have to acknowledge that that's happening to you. Uh, just to keep your shit together. But on the other hand, you can't let it enter your ego because then you start to think you deserve all that attention. See, the thing is, fame is like money. It's only valuable because everyone says it's valuable. But it's there's a lie at the center of it. And the lie is that money's paper. It's not gold even. I mean, even gold's only valuable because everyone says it's valuable, but at least it's pretty and has some industrial application or whatever. But paper money's just fucking paper with images stamped on it. And everyone says that's worth worth a lot, so it's worth a lot. Um, but it's a lie. And fame is the same way because fame is built on this lie that because lots of people know who you are, there's something special about you. But the only thing that's special about you is that lots of people know who you are. And they don't even know who you are. They just know your name or your face or whatever, you know? So the whole thing is a fucking illusion. Um, and the trick is to recognize that it's an illusion, but not... Uh, dismiss the reality of it because people are excited to meet you and inside you're thinking well, why the fuck are they excited to meet me i'm just this i fart in bed like everyone else right but so you can't discount their feeling because that's rude and that's insulting to them so it's it is a complicated thing but as far as me i mean uh I felt when I was writing Sex at Dawn, like, if this book gets some attention, it could take off. Because this is exciting. This is interesting. This is, this insight 
that I've had about monogamy, and I, I had it probably 10 years before I wrote the book. Um, so I've been carrying it around for a long time, thinking about it, trying to find the where I was wrong, because I thought I must be wrong. So I'd been living with this idea for quite a while, and the longer I lived with it, the more solid it became, the more details I filled in, the more I learned how other sciences, genetics, primatology, anthropology, archaeology, human anatomy, the shape of the penis, the fact that our balls are outside our body, the chemical constituents of of sperm and and the pH of the vagina and the the female orgasm and like all these things all supported this idea that I had. And I didn't know all these things when I first had the idea. I only knew two or three things and I thought, well, that maybe it, maybe this is the story. And then the more I learned about the supporting science, the more I saw how all this stuff fits into that story and, you know, fills it out. And uh, so I felt intellectual excitement and I felt like, I think this is a really exciting argument I'm making here. And it seems like nobody else is making it. And I think the reason they're not making it is because they, they're afraid of losing their jobs or their marriage will collapse or this is like, this is scandalous, but it's true. And so that was really exciting. Now, I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to be famous and have a podcast, you know, or whatever, whatever this is. Uh, I didn't think, I didn't, I didn't think how it was going to affect my life personally. I just felt like it's an exciting idea and it would be fun to see what happens if this idea gets out. And it did get out. And, and, but there were moments like when I first sent out query letters to agencies in New York, literary agencies, I had no representation. I had no contacts in the publishing world, nothing. I just found this website that, um, sort of explain how to write a query letter for literary agents. And then there was another website that had a, it's called Editors and Predators, I think. And it's a list of all the literary agencies. And it's sort of like tells you which ones are legit, which ones are scams, because there are a lot of scam agencies out there that charge you money to, you know, read your manuscript, because there are lots of hopeful writers who are willing to pay some money to try to get into the publishing world. And so there are all these, you know, bottom feeders out there, Uh, victimizing those sorts of people. And so this website was uh, set up to help you get around that. And so I found, I think I I, um, found 20 agencies that accepted email uh, query letters and were based in New York and who had sold some popular science books in the past five or 10 years or something. So they were more or less legit and worked in the area I was interested in. And I sent um, 20 emails to one to each of these agencies. And I figured they're all going to say no, of course, but some of them might say no because, you know, this or that or whatever. And that will help me shape the query letter and shape this idea for the book and, you know, figure out how to, you know, increase my chances with the next 20 and the next 20 and the next 20. Because, you know, it's a war of attrition trying to get the attention of somebody like a literary agent or an editor or whatever. And I sent those out. And I think that was like on a Wednesday or Thursday and Monday, there were emails from more than 10 of them offering representation. That was, holy shit, what? 
that was the moment from, will someone please pay attention to me? And this idea to, oh, now I get to choose who's lucky enough to represent me. Like there were dollar signs in their eyes. You could see it. That was a, that was a wild moment. No doubt about it. I, I think Cassie and I didn't sleep for like three nights. We were just so high on the adrenaline and like, wow, this thing that we've been doing, thinking it's a long shot, suddenly is starting to seem like it's a done deal. That's a pretty crazy transition to go to have uh, in a few days. But that, and then we flew to New York and they took us out and wined and dined us and, you know, everybody trying to convince us to go with them. And, you know, they saw a big seller. And, uh, yeah, maybe I'll tell that story in a Talking Out My Ass episode sometime. But that was a pretty wild experience, I have to say. You know, and I remember one of the agencies, uh, the, the, the president of the agency said, do you realize what's going to happen when this book comes out? You're going to be as big as Darwin. You are going to be, you know, you're, all the Christians are going to be attacking you and you're going to be like in the center of this storm. Are you ready for that? And I remember thinking, dude, you're really overreacting to this, right? And I was right. I mean, come on, as big as Darwin, that Darwin's the biggest scientist of the last 300 years. Um, and, you know, no matter how out of control my ego gets, it'll never get that out of it, out of control. But, uh, you know, I took his point. He was saying, are you ready to be famous? Are you ready to have Fox News attack you? Are you ready to be on TV defending these ideas? Um, and uh, I probably wasn't, but uh, I learned to, to deal with it pretty quickly. And uh to get back to the the question I'm trying to answer here, did I feel a pull? Did I feel a transition, a change? No, not really. I was who I am already. So I think that's the key is having the, the, the sort of your personality solidify before these influences get in there. If this had happened in my 20s, I, it would have been a very different experience. Um, and probably not a very healthy one. Um, and, you know, this is kind of, uh, I guess, appropriate to be talking about this. This morning I was on a conf- on a Skype call with a screenplay writer in Hollywood who wants to talk about doing a screenplay based on one of the uh, Talking Out My Ass episodes. So it's funny, and I, I would say that's the most interesting thing about becoming a public person is that so many opportunities open up, you know, like if you, you know, you've had some cool experiences and you tell a good story and, you know, I sort of had that reputation among my friends for years and that was cool. And you're at a party and someone says, Oh, tell that story about, you know, the scorpion in Guatemala and I'll tell the story and everybody laughs or, you know, whatever. Wow. What a story. And that's cool. Right. But when you tell that story on a podcast that 50,000 people listen to, then, you get an email from a, a Hollywood writer who wants to make a movie out of it. You know, now that probably will never happen, but it's a, it's cool. Uh, it's, it's interesting, but it also takes up time, right? So you tell the story at a party and then you go home and that's the end of it. You tell the story on a podcast, you start getting emails from people who want to make movies. And then, you know, 
and then that changes your life. So now you don't have time to answer emails anymore. Anyway, everybody's got their problems. But um, I just thought I'd talk about that a little bit this week. Uh, and I hope I didn't sound like too much of a dick. So this week's episode is uh, Justin Alexander, who is a very cool guy, sort of famous in his own way. If you follow his Instagram account, um, he, he's he got some real chops there. He's a very good photographer um, and uh, takes, I don't know how he takes these photos of himself in amazing places. This morning he posted one of himself sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon. He must have must have a little tripod and timer and stuff. Uh, he's a, a real adventurer, very interesting cat, amazing life story. He's young, but um, he's he's living it. He's uh, hiked into the uh, western part of Nepal where very few people trek that far. He trekked back there. He had a guide and then he paid off the guide and just hung out alone in very remote areas. Um, Amazing photographs, by the way. So if you enjoy this conversation, make sure you check out his Instagram account. It's Adventures of Justin. And he's also got a blog, Adventures of Justin. Google him. He's fascinating. Very smart. Very interesting guy. Um, And talk about taking the, the road less traveled. Uh, it's definitely made all the dis- difference for Justin. Just a couple of things to cover before we get into that. Uh, those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while will remember the episode I did with Mandy. Um, Mandy has or had a degenerative disease that uh, had her basically bedridden and thinking seriously about suicide. And uh, uh, she started using ayahuasca uh, kind of on her own. I think she's had some assistance and guidance, um, but pretty much on her own. And in the last year and a half or so, she's gone from, you know, being at the edge of despair to getting up and walking and walking like more than a mile in a day. And now she's going to Mexico um, to participate in an ayahuasca retreat. And so the people who run the retreat uh, have very generously waived their fees um, and, you know, are just sort of uh, scholarship, I guess you call it, to have her join them. Um, But Mandy has to pay for her trip and um, someone to go with her to, you know, help her because the place she's going, you, you you don't take a taxi there. You got to go on boats and you know hiking and moving. So she'll need some some assistance, some physical assistance. So she's got a friend who's going to go with her, but they're trying to um, uh, raise some money to pay for the trip. So if you are in a position to help and you want to help with something like that, um, please consider contributing to Mandy's effort. You can find that at. Uh, GoFundMe, G-O-F-U-N-D-M-E dot com forward slash Mandy Lives. That's her GoFundMe uh, uh, campaign. And uh, if you want to uh, refresh your memory or if you just uh, never caught the episode with Mandy, it's episode 87, which you can find 
at my site, chrisryanphd.com. Another friend of the podcast, Daniele Bolelli, has started um, uh, a second podcast. He's got his own, um, uh, the what's it called? The Drunken Taoist is his normal podcast. But he started a history podcast. He's a historian, and um, he's a big fan of Don, Dan Carlin's, and he knows Dan pretty well, I, I believe. And uh, so Daniele has started his own history podcast called History on Fire. Uh, just first episode just uh, posted a few days ago. So if you enjoy history, um, his first episode is about the Roman slave uprising. And uh, of course, Daniele has that um, uh, fantastic Italian accent. So if you like uh, history, very living, uh, passionately told history uh, from a professional historian who speaks with an Italian accent... You can't go do better than History on Fire with Daniele Bolelli. You'll find that at the iTunes store, and you can Google it. And you'll find it all over the place, I'm sure. All right, let's get to this conversation with Justin. I'm going to play you out with a song called The Mark of a Good Man by Mark Boyd of a band called Bimini Road. Bimini, I think, is an island in the Bahamas. Um, you can find his website. He's a sound engineer. Uh, if you have any recording needs at, uh, Bimini road electronics.com. And you can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Bimini road music forward slash sets forward slash Corinthian dash arches dash EP. Woo. I'll have a link to that on my site, or you can probably just go to SoundCloud and search Bimini Road and you'll find him and his stuff. Um, anyway, I really like this song and it uh, it's reminiscent of some of the stuff that Justin and I talk about. So I hope you enjoy it too. If you're listening to it with headsets, uh, listen for the really delicate guitar work in the background. It's beautiful. Thanks, Mark. Mark listens to the podcast, by the way. Um, speaking of emails... Uh, lots of you have been sending in music recently. Uh, appreciate it. And I'm sorry, you know, like I, I, it could be months before I get around to playing something, as it has been for Mark. That's not a sign of uh, not appreciating music. That is a sign of the chaos that is my life. If, and here's, here's a nice segue. If uh, I get enough funding for the podcast through Fund What You Love, uh, and I've got a budget I'm going to hire a fucking assistant who will deal with my emails. How about that? How about that? He or she will deal with all these emails, uh, prioritize stuff, organize the music that people send me, figure out what episode it goes with and which one it doesn't go with and all that kind of stuff. I will hire someone and pay them to do that. Um, if I get, you know, let's say, uh, 3500 bucks a month or something, I'll uh, use a big chunk of that to hire an assistant. So there's a motivation for you. Uh, you can find me at fundwhatyoulove.com, tangentially speaking. You can uh, make contributions there if you feel like it. If you don't feel like it, don't sweat it. Or if you do feel like it and you can't afford it, don't sweat that either. I know what that's like. Hope you enjoy this song. It's called Mark of a Good Man, The Mark of a Good Man. And the, the band is Bimini Road, Mark Boyd. Thanks. Catch you next week.
cool. I'm I'm in Laurelhurst Park with Justin Alexander and about five dogs that I can see down there in the mud. Uh, in, in amongst the grove here, this beautiful grove of trees. Justin Alexander, who the hell are you? You're a, what are you? You're a travel blogger? Is that what you said earlier? Well, no. I mean, I, I do have a blog. I, I rarely post, only when there's kind of some interesting story to tell. But as of, over the last year and a half, I think I've posted three times. So I'm not a travel blogger by any means. And I'm not looking to monetize it or anything like that. I just kind of use that as a space, along with social media, to share who I am and what I'm doing with people that might be interested um, right now. So when people ask what I do, I generally say I'm just a nomadic world traveler, you know, exploring the world, telling stories and <laughs> doing I, I, things I like stuff the, that's interesting. I like the just, the, <laughs> the humble brag there. <laughs> oh, me, I'm just a lowly world traveler, <laughs> retired at 24, well, whatever the fuck you are. <laughs> yeah. 34, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Well, how old were you when you retired? Uh, 32. 32. Okay. All right, good. So you're you're a little more grown up than yeah. I. Than I've been I traveling since 2006, but not full time. Like I, I sold everything I own and quit uh, conventional life into in, when I was 32. 32. Yeah, fell so. in love with traveling back in 2006. I went and uh, helped out on a f- documentary filmmaking expedition in Nepal for a month, and caught the travel bug really hard mm, and Nepal's great oh it's one of my favorite countries for sure I've got some deep deep connections with with the family oh with right there. okay I saw your photographs from the, you were way the fuck back like in the yeah. Mustang region mm. yeah the yeah. Tibetan kingdom of Lo. I yeah. saw I saw a, uh, well I was there in 2006 and someone told me about it my friend Tashi and it just sounded like a magical forgotten place yeah you know and uh, and then I saw a book called I think it's before they're gone it's a photography Oh, that's book. wonderful. Oh, that, man. Yeah. This is I, like my passion. Uh, J- Johnny someone or Jimmy Nelson. Jimmy Nelson is the photographer. Okay. Really interesting dude. Like lost all his hair when he was in junior high school or something. I don't know his story. I've just yeah, his... he, he had this disorder where he lost all the hair on his body. Well, And so he was this freaky looking 14 year old or whatever. And um, it's sort of, you know, I don't remember the details of the story, but it's worth looking up. And mm. I think it's in that. I've given that book as a gift to, to several people, mm. like who oh, have houses. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, beautiful coffee table book. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't have a coffee table. <laughs> I don't have a house. Uh, so I just look at the photos online. Yeah, same thing. And, uh, same you know, illegally download them and use them when I give presentations occasionally. <laughs> Uh, but I always credit him. He's Jimmy Nelson. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Anyway, so you saw that uh, the book, and there's some. I, I remember the photos he's got of the Mongolian dudes with the the eagles. I'm gonna go there. The hunting eagles, yeah, Kazakh eagle that. hunters, and yeah. yeah, in uh, in October, I think they have a eagle hunting festival in Olgi. I think that's how you pronounce it in Western Mongolia, and basically right by the Kazakh border. And that area is really rich with with that culture. I'm mm-hmm. so fascinated by that. I want to go. Yeah. Basically, visit a lot of the places that are in his book and, and live with people there. That's what um, oh, I'm kind of losing track. But uh, anyway, that's what uh, what eventually got me. Last time I went to Nepal, I landed in uh, Kathmandu, and the first night I was up on top of the rooftop uh, with a bunch of travelers, and everyone was talking about all the hikes that they did. And someone mentioned that they really wanted to go up in this place called Mustang. And then uh, I remembered that my friend Tashi had told me about it, and I decided that. 
oh, that's that's the place I'm gonna go. And I ended up getting an interpreter and went up there. I, uh, it's like I think you get a five day. You pay for like a five day pass to get up in there. You have to have a, a you have to register to get into the district, and you have to have an interpreter with you legally. Um, so I ended up paying a little bit extra and getting ten days. And then once he got me up there, I got rid of him and ended up wandering around on my own for the rest of the time. I was up in the mountains for a little over three weeks, walked maybe three, 400 miles. Would you do push him off a cliff or something? No, but I was like, well, I'm, I really don't want to have an interpreter. I want to be up here on my own. And he was really worried about, you know, cause he has a contract with the touring company and yeah. didn't want to have liability of losing mm-hmm. me or something like that. But eventually I was able to pay him off and convince him that I'd be fine and uh, took <laughs> off on my own. So I ended up spending the first nice. part of that and made a little video that's up on my Adventures of Justin blog and uh, you know wrote some stories and have some pictures. Uh, that place is just magical and it feels like stepping back in time which yeah. is the thing that the, the thing about travel that I, I love so much is the ability not just to see places but to, to I feel like I'm able to time travel. I went and lived with a a tribe in Indonesia called the Mentawai tribe, also on my blog, and uh, you know lived out in the jungle for ten days with a, a couple families. You know, and, you know they do all the traditional uh, tattoos like the lines and stuff like that. Lived stayed with a couple shaman, and uh, you know they hunt still hunt with poison tip bow and arrows and stuff like that. Where was that? This is a, a small cluster of islands called the Mentawais, which is famous in the surf world because they have one of the most consistent surf mm. and beautiful tropical island off the west coast of Sumatra. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I was in Sumatra for three months and ran into some surfers. Is, Nias, is that one of the islands? I'm not sure. Sibirut Island is the one that I Sibirut, went to. It's the uh, most southern of the cluster. And the whole interior, like there's a, they kind of have the reservation where the natives live and they, uh, they have government housing and stuff like that. But all their, all their elders still live out in the old ways. And, you know, you, you end up taking a five hour motorized dugout canoe ride up these muddy rivers to get out to this, this place. And, uh, wow. and, uh, I, I hired an interpreter there <clears throat> and just, yeah, he took me up and man, it was, it was definitely, I felt like I, I, I could have been a thousand years ago, Yeah, you know, besides they've got some, you know, some plastic utensils and, you know, occasionally they have a gas lamp, but besides that, everything is, you know, is, is, uh, ancient. And, and the thing is they, you know, as you've experienced, everything's the flip side of what we're told it is. We're told they're so poor because they only live on a dollar a day or whatever bullshit it is, but they don't have a money economy. So a dollar a day doesn't mean anything. Right. And they don't want to join civilization. Totally. They're, they're dragging their feet, fighting tooth and nail not to join this fucking party. That, you know, we, the propaganda is it's so great. Everybody wants to be with us. No, they don't. None of them want to be with us. Right. That's what Jimmy Nelson was documenting in his book, right? right? It's like these are the last vestiges of these amazing cultures and none of them want to walk away from their world and join ours. And none of them ever had. It's fucking. All right. At, at that rant, I'm going to pause this and change the battery because right. now I see these. All right. We are back. Yes. Here we are. All right. Good. Um, I interrupted you. You're talking about, uh, oh, living with this, uh, these families way back in the jungle off the west coast of Sumatra. Sumatra, crazy place. Very few people ever go there. 
you know, people go to Indonesia, they go to Bali, they go right. to Java. Which, and I didn't like Bali, to be honest. And yeah. everyone, everyone is, uh, you know, it's like I slap them in the face when I tell them I'm not really into Bali, but I'm just not really into the, I don't know, the... Drunk Australians? Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, if I wanted to hang out with drunk Australians, I'd, you know, <laughs> go <laughs> yeah. to Australia. Yeah. But that was overwhelmingly my experience in Bali. And then, I, you know, I rode around, I, I got a motorcycle and rode around, and I went up to Ubud, but that's also not, like, really my scene. You know, it's just very, yeah. very super new agey, lots of, lots of yoga, and which is fine, but it's not, like, really what I'm looking for. It's not a cultural experience. Yeah. So let, let's let's take this back because I know a lot of people listening to this. Um, I get a lot of emails from people who say, you know, dude, you know, I'd love these travel stories. I want to do that. How do you do it? Mm. How do I have money? How, well, how how does one? They're always asking me how how do I do it, and yeah. I can't answer them because I can just say how I did it. Yeah, which involved an incredible amount of just being lucky as fuck. Uh, which is part of how you get out there, but also part of how you don't get hurt on mm-hmm. all these motorcycle rides you're talking about. How you don't, you know, you get sick. Everybody gets sick, but, right. you know, you don't have to be medevaced out. Right. Some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, there's definitely risk involved. But how did you, what were you doing before? When did you, what did you retire from? Uh, it, so I got, I got obsessed with travel in, in 2006 and then decided that what I really, and then read like the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and a couple right. other books about lifestyle design and kind of trying to create, uh, you know, his whole thing was starting a company and outsourcing all the works. So you have lots of free time. Um, but what he did is, you know, he wrote that book while he was traveling the world. And I, I, I'd, made a bunch of friends who were, had, you know, done year and year and a half and two year long trips around the world. And that was really, really, it's like, well, that's the life that I want. And, uh, I was in a band at the time in the Bay area and doing some work with after school programs with youth. And, um, that, you know, I ended up saving up money. And then in the winters I would go over to Southeast Asia and I was kickboxing over there and I was adopted into a family. And so I'd go and back and forth and travel over into Southeast Asia when I could, but it was not really sustainable. You know, I'd have to go back and work and do stuff that I wasn't passionate about and save up. And a lot of people do that. And that's, you know, so when people ask, how do I do this? I just say, well, it just has to do with putting your priorities in order and really right. being mindful about the decisions you make and the responsibilities you take. Because a lot of times people, you know, if you, once you have a kid and you get tied into a house and all of this stuff, it, it really, you know, you've got that whole freedom versus security spectrum, you know, and the more secure and locked in you get in your life, the less opportunity you have to do other things. Yeah. And, you know, there's pros and cons to both ends of the spectrum. You know, not, not everyone would really want to be living everything they own is in, in a backpack on their back. There's, you know, this is not very comfortable. I, I've never had a real sense of home. I've always been kind of a nomad. My family moved around a lot. I've had probably more houses than I have years of life. And so it just feels very natural for me to just continue like this. And I spend a lot of time camping and in the woods and doing survival stuff as a teenager. So this, this feels like a very natural progression. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like the world is my home and I, I can feel home yeah. pretty much. Any, any place where I know somebody and I feel familiar with the area feels like home a little bit. But, uh, yeah, in 2009, I, uh, a friend and I started a technology company and it was based out of Miami. So I ended up trans transferring to Miami, did, uh, anti-counterfeiting tracking and marketing for luxury goods, did a lot of stuff with wine, uh, brand protection for wine, putting RFID chips on the, 
on the backs of wine bottles that can be scanned by smartphones to see that they're real and get marketing information and stuff like that. But uh, it definitely is not my passion. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't really proud of who I was or what I was doing. You know, I, uh, it's like when you, when you introduce yourself and they ask you, what do you do? I would always be like, oh, I'm a tech entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I didn't think it was very cool. None of my heroes are tech entrepreneurs. They're yeah. all adventurers, right. you know. So uh, the company did well enough that I was able to, and I contributed enough that I was able to step back and, and still have a passive income coming from my ownership position. Mm. And so I've got a small passive income that f- supports the, the type of lifestyle that I really value. That's and it's fantastic. Like, yeah, and it's, you know, like you said, luck. I, mean, I was born in a country where I don't have to worry about getting killed every day, and, you know, and I don't have to worry about where my next meal's coming from. So Unless I do black. consider myself, well, true, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, crazy um, shit happening. Did you, oh, you don't follow the news. This guy yesterday, white guy, 30-year-old father of a little kid, married, whatever, like conventional guy, uh, took acid at a concert and was maybe acting weird, people said, you know, and a cop approached him and he backed away from the cop and next thing you know, they hogtied him. No. And he fucking died. Oh, that's terrifying. Can you imagine? You're tripping and some cop, you know, what are you doing? And next thing you know, you're you're hogtied and you're fucking dead because you can't breathe. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, you said something there that really resonated with me that that came up a lot and still comes up a lot for me. uh, Moving as a kid, Mm. you know, that's a really painful uh, way to, to grow up. You lose your friends over and over again and you don't have that sense of community and... Yeah, yeah, it was a big thing for me. And, I, you know, having sometimes three schools in three states in one year, especially in your early teen years, is really hard because that's where you're really developing your identity a yeah. lot. Yeah. And so I definitely became a social outsider, the quiet loner kid. Right. And uh, I found my solace in nature. And right. I was reading lots of books. Uh, Tom Brown Jr. is a... Is a uh, author who has a survival school in New Jersey and his story is that he was raised by a Native American elder and taught the old ways and he was my hero and I grew up with movies like Last of the Mohicans and Last of the Dogmen and uh, and uh, and um, oh, Legends of the Fall like these guys yeah. were all my heroes you know yeah, these guys that lived out in, in the woods in the old ways and, and so I basically decided that you know I could, didn't really fit in socially so fuck everybody and fuck society I'm gonna go like be be a hero you know be my like grow into my yeah. own hero and do the things that i really valued and um yeah so i dropped out of high school and, and went to an alternative high schooling educational program which is all nature based that's up in washington about an hour east of seattle and uh yeah so i i i didn't really socialize i didn't have a girlfriend till i was 19 mm. uh you know i didn't kiss a girl till i was 19 i was basically out in the woods running around barefoot starting fires by rubbing sticks together and tracking animals which is a little weird but and uh, now look at you <laughs> <laughs> now look at me <laughs> we, we, yeah well we won't mention how far you've come uh for people who want to see justin naked <laughs> uh, check out my my or I guess you put it on your Instagram that that shot of you on the I've got some naked shots of me on there <laughs> in Hot Springs recently and then one of me oh, naked yeah, on the salt flats of uh, Salar de Uyuni in Bolivia oh nice the salt flats. oh the it's a beautiful the shot. famous the, the uh, that's where like all the lithiums supposed to be coming from in the uh, future yeah maybe for all our electric cars oh. yeah Bolivia is sitting on like the biggest lithium uh, deposit in the world I actually brought you a salt crystal from there oh get, great thank you 
you after the podcast. Um, no, you, you sent, you posted a picture of yourself on your bike, uh, naked reading sex at dawn, right. or at least holding it in front of your junk. <laughs> and, uh, all these women posted on my Facebook page, like, Hey, you know, give him my number. Who is, who is this guy? This why is the not, best one yet. Why are you not passing that along? <laughs> well, you know, you're on Facebook. You I, I ain't a pimp anymore. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, that that whole thing about, you know, being the, the outsider, being the new kid, learning to sit alone in the lunchroom. Yeah. And your your refuge is a book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read those books, too. I, I There was a book called My Side of the Mountain. Oh, yeah. Did you know that, that one? Oh. That and Hatchet. And there were all these other, these were these dog books I read a lot, too. That big Red or Red Jim or something about... You know, it was always, or the Jack London Call books, the Wild, Call the Wild. Like totally. always about that line between yeah. domestication and wild, yeah. right? And like the domesticated dog that becomes the wolf, right? you know, or the, the mountain men who sort of go, go native. And yeah. I love that shit. And like you, I was like, I mean, for years, I wouldn't, I slept on the floor from the time I was like seven, you know? My father and I were wrestling on the bed and it broke. And then I was just like, no, I'll sleep on the floor like an Indian. Yeah. And then I wouldn't use a pillow because my logic was if I was on an airplane and it crashed and I had to survive in the wilderness, that would be one less thing to, that would bother me about being in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have my pillow. You're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> I could have just taken a pillow from the, from the crash site. You know, there are plenty of pillows uh, but yeah, I was always planning for the the post apocalypse. I guess I still am. I mean, yeah. there's a that was a big thing for me. Yeah. So, did you feel from a young age that something was just wrong about American society? Yeah, I just civilization in general. I was really against, and I, I've definitely come back the other way. And I, you know, I spent ten years kind of living in the, the normal world and and learned to appreciate things of it. And I feel like my life is about walking that razor's edge and appreciating great the book. Yep. Also razor's a great book edge. and a good also, movie. Yeah. Really with yeah. Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Yeah. yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, very, it's very much about a guy like you or me who, who went out, gave up everything. It was, it took place in the twenties. If I mm-hmm. remember I the so. stock market crash, he took off all his friends were committing suicide or whatever. He had already given up the, the big, big, great Gatsby life. Mm-hmm. And he was in India studying, meditation yeah. and all this shit and then he came back and all his friends are all fucked up and he's this guy who's completely calm and relaxed and yeah. has no money and but but has figured shit out in a way yeah. right let's figure out who he is and what's important in life and what what good values are about you yeah. know what the types of important things to put value on not just putting value on the things that we're told to put value exactly. on exactly kind of making his own figure way it out yeah, i mean i always look at that as you know, like people, we live in this mass production society, and one of the things that's mass produced is identity. And so most people are choosing their identity off a rack, you know, the same way you choose your clothes. It's just like, well, yeah, that's more or less my size, I guess. Default life. Yeah, whatever. And what, what's everyone else wearing? Oh, I guess jeans. I wear jeans, right? Oh, you know, politics. Well, I'm a whatever. I'm a hippie. I'm a Nazi. I'm a Republican. I'm a... You know, and often it's it's being defined in contrast to your parents' generation. It, everyone thinks they're doing something original, but when you look at it, it's like, what the fuck, man? What's yeah. original about this, you right. know? Yeah, so I felt the same way. It's like 
I can't be normal because hmm. I don't have friends. I don't have a community. I don't have a home. I don't have an identity that's tied to a particular region or country or whatever. I can't be normal. So I'm sort of forced to figure it out on my, hmm. on my own, which ended up being this incredible blessing. What do you think was the kind of impetus for the, the root of this type of thinking for you? Was it I, books? I, well, no, I think the impetus was uh, earlier than that, and it's sort of what you were describing. I think the, the, imp, the original impetus was a sense of not belonging. Hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to. I mean, totally. if I had had the opportunity, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a fucking hero. I'm just saying I was sort of pushed into a corner where... I couldn't be a normal kid. Mm. And so I had to be weird. Maybe I would have been weird anyway, but I definitely chose to, um, you know, try to turn that weakness into a strength. Mm. Like, hey, I, okay, I don't have any friends. Well, you know what? Fuck you guys. I don't need any friends because I'm smarter than all you jackasses with your silly little groups. And I'm going to sit here reading books that you can't even fucking begin to understand. And so it's not, yes, I'm outside the group, but it's because I'm better than you, not because I'm worse than you. Which in the end, you know, that became a problem that totally. I had to overcome. Totally. I was a pedantic dick for a long time there. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I feel like uh, belonging is a real basic human need. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like currently in the process of now with, I mean, now with the internet, I'm able to build and sustain a, a, a sense of, I guess, being social and creating my own community because I've never really had one. So like the people I choose to yeah. associate with are very, it's very purposeful. You know, yeah. I choose to associate people with who have similar values and, uh, you know, most of them happen to be nomads and living alternative lifestyles and don't have any sense of real community either. So, you know, I think that I think, yeah. but I think it's important. I mean, bond, social bonds and friendship is, uh, in, in, you know, there's a lot of importance in that and in, 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 in being healthy yeah. and having a healthy yeah. psychology, you know, as opposed to going off the deep end and becoming some like total sociopath who just never belongs. So therefore, fuck everybody. I'm going to go either be a hermit or be a crazy person on the street that everyone, yeah. you know, that no one wants to give money to and people spit at you and shit like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, and that's another thing that I try to talk about sometimes on the podcast is that there is a very steep price to pay for living the kind of life you're living right now. Yes. And most people don't realize that it's like, uh, when I tell people what I'm doing, everyone kind of, especially older men who see my motorcycle and hear about what I'm doing, you know, they, they just look at me and hear the story and they just kind of have this nostalgic youthful look in their eye and they're like, Oh, you're living the dream. Living the like dream. this is, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, but there's a lot of day to day shit that most people, you know, like not knowing where I'm going to sleep or have my next meal every day, you know, is, well, is and exhausting. The loneliness, yeah. It know? happens for sure. It has to, it has to, I, I can't begin to calculate how many hours I've spent sitting in restaurants, cafes, park benches, pensiones, whatever around the world alone, wishing I wasn't. Wishing yeah. I, I was with a friend, desperately wishing I was with a woman. But, you know, if you're moving all the time, you don't have time to really develop those kinds of relationships. And when I was really traveling a lot, there was no Internet. So yeah, I couldn't even do that kind of thing. My favorite thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really the Internet and having a smartphone has enabled my life in so many ways. A lot of travelers really uh, reject uh 
everything modern, including uh, the internet and technology and stuff like that. And I, and it, it just enables me in so many ways and yeah. it enables me to, I meet, I, you know, I scuba diving in Thailand in 2007. I meet some, I, in my dive class, there's a bunch of Swedish dudes. We end up making friends and partying and then we become friends on Facebook. Next time I'm in Sweden, I hit them up and it's oh, like, yeah. we've been friends. We, Mess, you know, we right. message each other occasionally right. or comment on each other's photos. It's like we were able to bond over those two years. Otherwise, you never see that person again. Like, what do they give you an email and you, you know, you just forget about them. And this way, yeah. I, you know, I end up staying at their place. We go out to some, you know, some great parties in Stockholm. Uh, they take me up to their family's place up in Uppsala, and mm. I do midsummer with them. Uppsala is that where they do the wing flying? They is do a lot of paragliding yeah. up there. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful uh, uh, Swedish countryside. Yeah. But, you know, without the internet, that wouldn't be be possible. So it's, it's you know, and with, you know, having GPS in my headset when I'm riding around on a motorcycle makes mm. everything, you know, I don't need to use maps and all that. And I yeah. occasionally get off into places where you have no internet and you have to kind of go back to traditional means. But, you know, and you need to be able to function without the phone, yeah. you know, and without the connection to the internet. So if you can't do that, then you're also limited. But it kind of like that's, again, walking the razor's edge, being able to... Uh, use the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's a big difference. I, I talk about this a lot in the talking out my ass thing. I um, trying to get people to understand. Like, do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? Talking out my ass. It's a separate podcast I do where I'm just telling travel tales. From oh about, wow! I'm gonna have to listen to that. Yeah, I haven't awesome. done a lot of them. I've just done like 14 of them at this point. But it's you know I'm talking. I'm, I'm at the beginning. I'm doing it chronologically and. So I'm talking about going to Kashmir in 1986 oh. or something like that. Wow. No internet, right? Yeah. No cell phones. Right. I, I would write a letter to my girlfriend back in New York. It took a month to get there. And then if she wrote back within a week, then it would take another month to get back. So I'm, get, I'm thinking like, okay, in six weeks, I'll probably, I'll, I'll get to Varanasi around then. So, you know, I tell her, write to me at the general post office in Varanasi. And so then I get to Varanasi, go to the post office, and they have these big files. And you look by your last name, and there are all these wow. letters. And like, oh, there's a letter for me. Oh, my God. And it's already six weeks old, yeah. you know. And she's responding to shit you said two and a half months ago. So right. it's a completely different well, world. Totally. And now, you know, like you going back in, in you know, this island with these these people way up the river, you're getting that far away. But most travelers, you never get that far away because yeah. you're always there's you got your phone. Mm-hmm. Your mom sends you a text. How you doing? Oh, good. I just had the fruit salad for breakfast. You know, like right, right. Mom may as well be there with you. Yep. You know, I had this shortwave radio that I took with me with this like telescopic um, antenna. And I remember on this, ho- I was on a houseboat up in Srinagar, and I remember like, <laughs> and I got like the BBC, and like, and they're talking about cricket scores or something, and I, I don't even know what cricket is, but it's in English. I'm like, oh, English, great, oh, totally. Like, you know, if a nuclear bomb went off, now I'll find out. Right. You know, that was that was there in Chernobyl. Oh happened, wow! So whatever year that was, I don't know. In in the last five years or something, I went from being like someone who could still think of himself as being in his 30s mm-hmm. to a, like a fucking elder statesman or something it's a weird thing it happened really fast you know I, I don't know if it happened inside my head or if it's an external thing because i wrote this book and now i'm doing a podcast and like my 
my posture toward the world is different. So it, it focuses light on things that didn't used to get focused. I don't know what it is, um, think, but it's weird. Things are changing quickly. Things are changing. Yeah, things are changing quickly. I, I think of it like, you know, how the water goes faster and faster as it gets closer to the drain, <laughs> you know, or the waterfall or whatever. All right, we've got a cacophony of mutts barking all of a sudden here because of one little bastard. Isn't it? It's always the little dogs that make the most noise. There's a metaphor. Um, okay, so we're talking about, you, you mentioned while I was changing the batteries, we were talking about, uh, for me, one of the big costs of backpacking around the world for a long time was that I had to sacrifice the company of women to a large extent because you're on the road and the other women who are on the road are in one of two positions. They're either with their boyfriend or they're with another woman friend and they have vowed a sacred vow not to spin off with some dude and abandon their friend, you know, in India or Nepal or Indonesia or wherever they are. Um, that's the way it was back in, you know, the 1800s when I was traveling. But now, with all these dating apps, what the fuck? You yeah. just put up your profile, you're, you're Mr. Cool Traveler Dude, everybody loves that. And as I was, I was saying before, before we turned on the mics, one of the things that, for me, traveling and women are very similar. And I know some people might hear this as me objectifying women or something, but I feel like if you have a deep connection with a woman, it's very much like traveling to a new country. Hmm. There, there's different smells and movements and energies and sounds and accents and voices. And there's a whole beautiful world that every woman is. Mm -hmm. And... I don't mean this in an exploitative way at all, just like I don't consider it exploitation to love to travel to a country you don't necessarily want to live in. Right. Um, and so in times when I wasn't traveling, I loved meeting new women because it made me feel like I was still getting some of that right. You're exploring. input. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now you can do both. Yep. Thanks to technology. <laughs> Welcome to the future. That's that's amazing. So you uh, you're on your Royal Enfield at the moment. Now, why did you pick a Royal Enfield? It's a motorcycle for those who don't know. Yeah, it's. Uh, I fell in love with the look of these bikes when I was over in Nepal in 2006, and uh, mm -hmm. I ended up getting it when I was living in Miami. I got it uh, maybe 2000. Oh, it's 2012, and. Um, yeah, I just love the vintage look and the kind of the, I mean, it's a very motorcycle diaries looking bike. Yeah, you know? good so, movie. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, also good movie. Another another <laughs> guy living his heroic destiny. Totally. Yeah, yeah. good music too. Mm -hmm. I really like the music from that film. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like it would be, I mean, it'd probably be a different trip if I was riding a, a dual sport KTM bike or something like that, you know, with all my, with, with all Gore-Tex waterproof, neon bright, <laughs> orange, everything, yeah. you know, but, uh, I'm kind of able to recreate, uh, a trip of, you know, a heroic trip of the, you know, the type, the type that I value. And you've got your, your old world goggles, yeah. you know, you got your leathers. So you got this sort of classic vibe and yet you say you got GPS in your 
headset. Yeah, well, when, I'm in the U, when I'm in the U.S., I definitely, you know, I love the fact that I can talk to everyone, for example. It's, traveling around the U.S., there's a lot that I really appreciate the conveniences of being able to, uh, you know, go into a grocery store and have all kinds of variety of things that I, that I can eat and, uh, you know, and like knowing consistently where I can do things. So, um, you know, it's not the same as say exploring Kazakhstan by motorcycle, but I want to do that kind of stuff too. Uh, but for now, I mean, you know, the United States is one of the most beautiful, uh, just nature, nature yeah. countries in the world. You it know, is, you've got yeah. such a variety, between, especially the West. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that excited about necessarily riding around in the East Coast, but you know, there's some really beautiful nature around there, up in the you know the mountains, uh, up through uh, the Virginias and North Carolina, yeah, and then Smoky up into Mountains, Maine and stuff like that. Yeah. But there's something very raw and authentic about you know riding through deserts in the American West, and then just yeah. parking the bike when it gets dark. Pulling, pulling over somewhere off the main road, taking a dirt road, parking the bike, starting a fire, and sleeping next to your motorcycle uh, under the stars. Yeah. It's just like it feels like, uh, I mean, it feels like I'm riding a horse. That's what I was going to say. It's very archetypal, and I do think it's got some deep resonance. I always felt that. Yeah. I, I remember when I first got a motorcycle when I was a kid, and my uncle, who was an adventurous guy, uh, I must I was like 17 or 18, I don't remember, but... I remember him saying, you know, yeah, I like your ride. And it's like, ah, it's kind of like a horse, you know. Yeah, it, 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 it feels was, like it. And, and when you're cruising around, this is something I didn't even notice until I had a bike. Other motorcyclists wave at you as you go by, give a nice little, yeah, you know, like there's a, a respect. cool little club yeah. of people that, like, get it. And you're, you're, people who, who haven't been on bikes don't know this, but you're always almost dead. You know, and you know, I don't mean that in a macabre way. I just mean it, you you feel alive because all day long that road's buzzing by and it's right there. It's not outside a big, you know, metal box. It's right there. You can put your foot down and touch it. Yep. And you can't help but be conscious of the fact that you are at the edge of the cliff all day long. Every day you're on that bike. Mm-hmm. And that makes you feel fucking great. Yep. And, and also, the other thing about being on the bike is because you're aware of the danger, your monkey mind is really focused. Like, mm-hmm. is there something on the road? What's around that curve? Mm-hmm. Is that a crack? Is that a pothole? Is that a rock? Is that an animal? Is that kid going to run out here? Is that guy going to turn left? He doesn't have his... Uh, you learn to watch, like, the wheels, not the turn signal. You learn to look in people's eyes. You learn all these survival things that keep your conscious mind so occupied that... You, do you get, like, in altered states? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And uh, some real... Especially out on open stretches of road, uh, a lot of... I mean, it's very meditative and you end up kind of going back and, you know, when you're, when you're in and around cars and things like that, you're having to be very mindful, you know, yeah. so it's like meditation in that way. But, uh, it's almost like hiking in a way when you're hiking up in the mountains and, you, and your mind, you start to, when I was in Nepal, I did, had a lot of free time kind of exploring through the mountains there. And I just, uh, was smoking a lot of hash and going on long walks by myself, walking, you know, sometimes 20 miles in a day and would kind of go through and start remembering things in my past and having and really thinking about things and uh like really thinking about like having these memories and and kind of pouring through my own uh psychology you know yeah. and uh really digging into 
thinking about important things like values and 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 uh, you know the type of experiences I've had and kind of reinterpreting them. It was very it was very uh, therapeutic, mm. and I, I find that those those long stretches where you're out, especially riding motorcycles through nature. Um, there's something very natural about it, yeah. you know, and, uh, it, it feels very therapeutic. It feels, I just read a book, uh, by Neil Pert, the drummer from Rush. Oh, uh, I want to read that. Oh, it's really good. It's, it's a lot of, um, I mean, it's not an exciting adventure motorcycle book. It's no. mostly him working through, it's a ghost rider on the healing road and, you know, his yeah daughter is killed in a car accident and his wife dies of heartbreak a year later and he just yeah. every everything that who he was died and he basically rediscovered himself on the road yeah. riding for a couple of years and that's that's you know, I, I i really identify with that you know it um he's a really thoughtful guy i, great I, I was too. a huge rush fan in high school uh i never liked getty lee's voice hmm. and the whole Ayn Rand shit that they were into for a while was pretty weird. But I always really appreciated the the fact that they never wrote love songs. Mm-hmm. You know, they were always writing about politics or the future or what it's like to be famous mm-hmm. or, you know, all, it was always... a lot of the lyrics. I think, he, all, yeah. I think he wrote all the lyrics. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. He's a very deep guy. Yeah. And a hell of a drummer. Holy shit. Yeah, legend. Yeah, I've seen them in concert about four or five times. Nice. Yeah. But back in the seventies and energetic 80s. show. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My best buddy in high school was a musical prodigy and uh, you know, just he was this kind of guy who was you know, he played um electric he played stand up bass, you know, in in classical, he played piano, he played electric bass, he played he played everything, right? He's one of these people who could do anything and um you know, he'd be like writing uh, Chopin-esque ballads and stuff for national competitions. And then he'd play funk, you know, mm-hmm. like Bootsy Collins. Anyway, he was, when he and I got to be buddies, he was like, dude, Rush, you got to Rush. Nice. And I listened to one or two songs. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> the, the high voice. But over time, I, I came to appreciate he was right. Uh, amazing, amazing musicianship. So, yeah, I'd love to read that. In fact, I'd love to get him on the podcast. It's a, it's a hard reach, but somebody told me he lives in Santa Monica. If yeah, I can I get a, a, a direct connection to him, uh, I would love to. Because, you know, when you interview someone famous like that, I, I feel I don't even try uh, to get people on unless they've expressed interest or um, I know their work really well. Because I feel weird if like i get a writer on and i haven't read any of his books mm-hmm. you know like, totally <laughs> I'm, it's kind of bullshit you know but with neil parrot like you know up until the mid 80s i i know probably the words to every song on every wow. album yeah yeah strange as that is anyway who gives a fuck who cares about what i think about rush when you get right <laughs> down to it um did you speaking of books have you ever read the snow leopard Yes, I read it Peter when I, I read it while I was in. Actually, I listened to it on audiobook while I was in uh, Nepal. Did he read it? Uh, I don't know if he did. He's kind it of was, a depressive voice. It, it would have been. I long. don't remember. Uh, I don't think he read it then. Yeah, uh, it was. So. It was pretty good to listen to. I feel like the 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 narrator of a book matters so much. I really like yeah. your choice on Sex at Dawn. I oh, found that wasn't our choice. Oh, really? <laughs> I, <laughs> no. I really liked it. Really? Oh, totally. Yeah, and mm. I, I've I've showed, I've I've showed your book to a lot of people, but I've also 
had late night conversations sometimes with a woman and I'll be like, you've got to check this book out. And I'll just start at the beginning. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I need to get this. You know, it's really an entertaining listen Mm. as well as great information. And I find that a lot of times great books that are read poorly. Uh, I like audiobooks a lot because I'm, you know, I listen to them a lot of times when I'm on the bike. Right. Uh, or I, I listen to audiobooks when I'm going to sleep every night. It's kind of like a bedtime story mm, and it like really relaxes me. And I'll just put on the 15 or 30 minute timer and then right. next night I'll go back and put it to the last thing I remember. Right. And I end up making through a lot of books that way and it's very soothing and relaxing. And, um, but yeah, I, but I find that, that books that even with interesting content, if it's read poorly or by an annoying grading voice, I have a really hard time sticking with it. Yeah. Well, I've I've got sort of a bad taste in my mouth about that because I offered to read the book mm. and they said no. Oh. And they said, well, you can read the preface, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I told them, like, you know, I've done voice stuff. Yeah, right? it would be I, great. Yeah. And, and there is a voice uh-huh. to that book, right? Mm-hmm. There's humor. There's a... And they, so they said no, and then I did the preface, the whole monkey attack thing. Right. Yep. And then, um, and then when we got an email from some fact checker uh, a few months later saying, hey, how do you pronounce the, whatever this tribe in the Amazon, the fuck have I know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was like, well, what are they, have they started recording? She said, oh yeah, they're like halfway into it. I said, well, we've got right of refusal, and they never sent us anything. Hmm. So, and I'm already like, fuck you guys. I offered to do this for free. It's your book. You know, and it's my book. (laughs) Um, And so I said, I wrote to them. I was like, you know, what's up? And so, oh, yeah, okay, sorry. Here's the reader. And they sent us an MP3, and I swear it sounded like a computer generated voice. Uh, She does a little bit. No, no, not this one. This was an earlier one. Oh, okay. And but it was like you know, it was like, like uh, you know the tribe in the Amazon oh, is known for their. It, it, it was horrible. So I wrote back and said, "No, I'm sorry." Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, some out of work actors getting screwed here. But you guys were supposed to run this by us at the beginning. How do you like it now? Um, we insisted there be a man and a woman because mm-hmm. the book's co-authored. And they sent us these, and it, it, we, we had been sort of haggling with them for long enough that I was like, all right, fine, this is fine. I don't love it because mm. I don't think that she – I think some of the humor sounds mean hmm. the way she reads it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little smug? Smug and sarcastic. Yeah. Um, and at least in my head, that's mm-hmm. not the way it sounds. But, you know, I recognize that my opinion is not the most uh, objective on these matters, you know. It's like like someone who sees a movie about their life, you know. Right, like, totally. Uh, how'd you like the actor playing you? Yeah, like, well, know. he didn't get it right. I don't know how feel about someone reading my story, you know. Well, this next book, I'll read it. Cool. Or there won't be an audio book. Or there will be. I'll just do it myself, yeah. you know. Fuck it. Well, I think there's something nice about having a woman read a read a a book on a topic that could be re- turn a lot of women off. I think it makes it more accessible yeah. t- to women to hear, yeah. to hear because it, a lot of it, I feel like a lot of it has to do with f- empowering the female, Yeah, you know? And, 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 uh, that's one of the things I really love about it. It's like a powerful sexual female is a healthy, great thing. Yeah. And, you know, if it was, you know, read by a guy may, that might be less accessible Could to sound someone. a little and, creepy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, I agree with that. Um, 
Yeah, Peter Matheson, fantastic writer for people who don't know his work. The Snow Leopard is about when he went to, I think he was in the Mustang region, wasn't he? No, it was, uh, I can't remember what it is now, but it's over on the other side of Everest. It's over by, they're over in Everest. They go into, they don't go up into Mustang, I don't think. But they do go to um, uh, another very culturally interesting and remote area. Right. Um, so he's traveling with uh, George Schaller, who is a field biologist, one of the most prestigious biologists in the world. Um, and he's studying uh, blue sheep, I think, blue mountain sheep yes, or something. Yes. And Matheson is invited to go along with him. And uh, it's, uh, when was this? Late 70s, probably when it took place and Matheson's wife had died just a few years earlier. And I, and so you reminded me of it talking about, you know, being way out in the middle of nowhere and sort of reassessing your life and, you know, digging deep. Cause I remember he does a lot of that in the book and yeah. there's a lot of very painful recollections of, of their time together. Mm-hmm. And I remember there's a very moving, account of uh, an LSD trip that they took together where he looked at her and saw death Hmm. and sort of predicted and saw what was coming. Very moving. And it was also interesting. I I found that book frustrating. I read it in Nepal as well. There are a lot of copies in in used bookstores in Nepal. Yes, and Into Thin Air and uh, books of the like. Yeah, Krakauer. He's a good writer too. Yeah, I I just read one of, oh, I just read his, uh, uh, the one on Alexander Supertramp. Oh, into, into, into the, the wild. wild. Yeah, I yeah. just, uh, I just uh, listened to that as I was coming up through Southern Oregon. A kindred spirit. Yeah, yeah, totally. Definitely. I feel that kid a lot. You know, I felt well, him as a teenager. That guy, I Chris was, McCandless. Yep. He was. I he did the same trip I did. I think he was like two or three years behind me. You know, all the hitchhiking and then Alaska, mm-hmm. and you know, same parts of Alaska. Well, there are only a few parts of Alaska you can go to hitchhiking, but he. Um, when I was up there, I I was looking at those mountains and thinking, fuck, I could just get like a big sack of rice and just walk back there and do the whole yeah. Walden thing for yeah. a summer. I think something, I haven't been to Alaska. I was going to, I was going to ride up there, but uh, I may at some point, <clears throat> but I'm going to stick to the States. But I feel like there's something about the expansiveness of a place like that, that, that is really, you know, and Jack London wrote about it all the time. There's yeah. this romanticism that, a lot, that calls a lot of people and kind of inspires that in, in people. Well, the reason I went there was I wanted to I wanted to go to an edge, like a frontier, mm. and I felt and you know I was in college, so I couldn't go to Kazakhstan or something. Mm-hmm. I had to get back for school and all that, right. so I had like six months or something because I skipped some shit and whatever. But I um, I remember my feeling in Alaska was like. That I was on an edge. You look west from Kenai and you're looking across Cook Inlet and then there are these volcanic snow-covered mountains with smoke coming out of the cones across the inlet. And then in that direction, there is basically nothing across Alaska into Siberia, you know, for, I don't know, seven, ten, twelve thousand miles. I don't know what it is. And there, it, there was a feeling like like the the earth was vibrating like there was a i remember feeling like there's this intangible sense of life and vibration here mm. and the more asphalt and buildings and weight that we put on the earth we tamp down that vibration mm. 
And I, I really felt that. Now, I was taking a lot of acid in those days, so maybe, maybe that's what I felt. But I, I was really struck by that. I don't know if it's still like that up there. You know, I'm sure it is if you go far enough out. But, um, yeah. Okay, before we leave Peter Matheson, the other book, if you haven't read it, you got to read it, is at Play in the Fields of the Lord. Oh, yeah, you told me about that when we talked when I was in the Amazon. That is such a good book. Man. Yeah. it's a Well, what I was going to say about the snow leopard that I found a little frustrating is that, you know, here's Peter Matheson. He's a Zen uh, Buddhist priest or lama or whatever he is or was. He died recently. Um, and he's out with this biologist and they're, you know, they were out like three months or something like hiking, just way out. And the sense that I got was that like George Schaller was, he was doing his work. He was taking notes. He was making, you know, recording his, um, his observations. And Peter Matheson, the intellectual was, Thinking, talking, writing a lot about uh, focusing the mind and all the sort of Zen principles, but he wasn't doing it. The other guy was doing it, <laughs> you know. But he was intellectualizing the process of the guy was living. Exactly, and so I ended up, you know, feeling like, "Fuck, what an irritating guy <laughs> to take on a hike." He like he won't shut up, and he's so depressing, and you know, and. You know, the other guy I'd love to hike with. He was really, uh, you know, uh, resourceful and he seemed really comfortable being alone. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, but that play in the fields of the Lord is an amazing book because it's a, it's a novel about first contact with a Stone Age tribe. It's also a movie hmm. starring um, Tom Waits, hmm. Kathy Bates. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, um, oh, what's her name? I always forget this woman's name. The tall blonde beautiful actress from Splash and um, Daryl Hannah. Hmm. Yeah, there's a great scene of Daryl Hannah bathing naked in a jungle river. I've got to see it. Yeah. Good book, though. Great book. Great book. Don't, if you, even if you see the movie, definitely read the book. Cool. So, uh, traveling and, and, you know, this whole thing with uh, George Schaller and Peter Matheson reminds me of a, you know, it's, it's hard to find people it's comfortable to travel with. Yes. I get the impression you travel alone most of the time. Yeah. Have you ever hooked up with somebody you were comfortable traveling with for a while? Yeah, well, I, n- not for that long. I actually uh, came back to the States. I was going to go stay with a tribe in the Amazon. I was down in, um, in South America for, over the winter and uh, ended up attending a bunch of ayahuasca ceremonies in Brazil with a, a variety of different shamans that were kind of all coming together and practicing ceremonies. And uh, got an invitation to visit this tribe called the Kashinawa. They call themselves the Hunikun. They're they're in western Brazil. And I was going to go, but, you know, arranging to visit a native tribe, you know, a lot of them don't have emails or internet and and they don't speak English and I don't speak Portuguese. Uh, So arranging that was taking a lot longer. And I was trying to do that before coming to the States because I wanted to meet up with a friend of mine named Sterling to do this motorcycle trip. And Mm. Sterling's doing a similar trip to what I'm doing. He's doing, we were going to do a trip from Southern California up to Alaska. And he is instead now doing a year on a motorcycle in all 49 states. And so we rode together through most of California for a few weeks. But again, I... uh, I think we each are very strong-minded individuals and, and um, you know, is, is a little bit hard to play, 
you know, kind of sidekick on his trip. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. like, I, I really want to do my own thing and be yeah. in charge of my myself. So it was great guy to travel with. And we ended up having a lot of good times together, but uh, we ended up separating in Northern California. He's up in, I think he's up in Idaho now. He's yeah. kind of ahead of me. I'm doing a similar thing. I'm not necessarily trying to get to 48 states or, or 49 states or uh, don't really have this mission in mind. I'm kind of wandering mm-hmm. and, you know, I meet cool people and they, I, I hear of beautiful places that I want to go check out and get yeah. it. You, you, when you meet travelers, so you always, yeah. you always get that like little travel insight, like you got to go to this waterfall yeah, in this spot. And I write exactly. it down on my phone. I'm like, when I'm in Montana, go here, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then they tell, oh, would you go to this restaurant and let them know that you know Jenny right. and they'll take good care of you. It's yeah. like, love that stuff. Well, and that's the stuff that people who haven't done this don't know happens. You know, that's they, they I tell people like if you jump, you'll find wings. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you can't anticipate. It's not in your fucking lonely planet. It's not on Yelp and you can't plan for it. You need to just go just buy your fucking ticket to Bangkok and, you know, go to some island and hang out and be friendly and be open and have a smile on your face. And you're going to meet people who are going to tell you about amazing places that they just came from or that they're about to go to and, and invite you along. Or two and then go your own That's way. how it works. Yeah. You know, that's the difference between travel and fucking tourism. Yep. And the other thing is. Don't get two weeks off work and think this shit's going to work. That's not how it happens. You got to quit your fucking job. (laughs) (laughs) You can't be traveling. And I've done both, right? And I'm sure you have too. The the one kind of traveling is till the money runs out. I mean, in your case, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, or until you just get tired of it. Right. But the other kind of travel is until your time runs out. Because you got a month or two months or whatever it is. One kind... You're adding experiences and a cumulative celebration of freedom and life and travel. The other, you're counting down. Yeah. The whole tone of the trip is different. Yeah, especially when when you overplan something. And definitely planning to some degree can be important. Like, for example, I've showed up in places like in Colombia. I went to the Tayrona National Park, which is a beautiful park on the on the on the Gulf of Mexico. And it just so happened the first two weeks of January are their spring break, kind of their summer break. So it was like, it was madness. I couldn't, I was out in nature, but I couldn't get a photo without a bunch of people playing volleyball in it, you know? So doing a little research is good, but there's something about having an open-ended unplanned kind of going towards something rather than to something. And the amount of, it just certainly seems like in a lot of cases that opens you up to things that feel like synchronicity, right. you know, where things occasionally you just have this run where stuff feels like magic. Yeah. Everything works out so incredibly. And if you had planned it, you, you would miss all kinds of opportunities. If you've got your next plane ticket a week, a week later, then, you know, you meet some cool people and you can't go, right. you know, you can't, you can't follow your Swedish friends down to New Zealand to go whitewater rafting because you've got to get back to California and right. get back with your rock band, you know, right. which is like, was so frustrating for me at the time. Uh, you know, I had like commitments and a regular life to maintain. And it, this type of traveling is freedom in its purest sense. It feels like it's, yeah. which is one of the highest values for me. Yeah. Yeah, just being able to float on whatever current mm-hmm. pulls you. That yeah. is such a wonderful fucking feeling. It is. Yeah. Wow. When I finish this book, I'm I'm Cassie and I are gonna go, I think, to Southeast Asia. We've been talking about Colombia though. Mm-hmm. Maybe Colombia, Ecuador could be interesting. Um 
But I found, you know, my first travel experiences, like real long-term travel was Asia. And then I went to Europe after that. And um, I had been to Mexico before but and Guatemala, yeah. Um, but I found, I don't know if you found this, but I found it after Asia, Latin America feels, it's just... I, I, the way I articulate it to myself is that Latin America, Latin, Latin American countries seem to wish that they were America, that they were the United States. And so there's this resentment. They're like the, the resentful younger brothers of the United States, mm. whereas Asia is a whole different family. Mm. Like India, they don't give a fuck. They're, they're in a whole different world, you know, or right. Laos or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, every country's different, obviously, but do you feel that? Is there a... Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I've necessarily felt uh, that type of resentment, but uh, there's something that feels a lot more foreign and exotic about the ancient Orient mm. to me. And I've really feel drawn to certain areas. And I wanted to check out South America cause I'd never been. And you know, I only spent three and a half months there, uh, and kind of in short times in different areas, like five, five or six countries. But, um, yeah, there's just really something about the, uh, through Eastern Europe down into the Mediterranean and, uh, you know, the Middle East into North Africa and then up through Central Asia. They're just really, really call to me. And there's mm. just like real, there's this ancient cultural feeling that, you know, the, the history of civilization. And, there, you know, there's so many people living such exotic and different lives than, yeah. than what I've been exposed to. And I'm really drawn to a lot of those areas and not really so drawn to exploring more. I mean, I'd like to go down into Central America and, you know, I've heard it's really beautiful and I, I love warm, clear water. Mm, you know, yeah. it's one of the things I really love is, you know, scuba diving or snorkeling and spear fishing and, you know, yeah. living in, a, I like being in climates where I feel like humans are supposed to be, you know, where I can go around <laughs> yeah, in shorts cool. and no barefoot shoes. and yeah. like I can yeah. shower outside and swim in rivers and not be really cold afterwards, you know, like, yeah. you know, being way cold or way hot and feeling like nature's trying to kill you. And I appreciate those Although moments. Although you have the where, fucking bugs when those oh, yeah, tropical that's places. True. That's true. It's, it's not trying to kill you. It's just trying to suck your blood. Yeah. A milliliter at a time. But I, I appreciate those <laughs> moments when I'm, especially when I'm in nature, when everything is just so, and you feel like oh, yeah. this is where I feel like a, a, yeah. a wild animal here. Like I belong here. Yeah. And so I kind of tend to follow the summers around the world. I kind of go Northern hemisphere in the summer and Southern hemisphere in the winter and kind of, cause I also don't like to travel with a lot of stuff. I don't want to have, I have to carry all these warm clothes around and keep myself right. from you know, so, you know, that limits you from going to certain areas, but, uh, you know, I, I love that kind of wild raw feeling of being a human in the world where, where you feel like you belong in yeah. that environment. Yeah. Yeah. My wife grew up in uh, Mozambique. Um, she really resonates with that kind of thing. And also in terms of food, like, mm. you know, oh, even yeah. in Portland, she'll, we'll be walking down the street and she'll be just grabbing the berries and tomatoes and stuff off people's plants. Yeah. And like, ba- baby, you can't just take it. I know. I'm not the same way, though. <laughs> what do you mean? It's growing. It's growing. Of course we can take it. No, I think someone owns that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, yeah, she's a, she's a forager. She, yeah. she loves that stuff. There's such good food. I love Ethiopian food. One of my favorite uh, foods Ethiopian. in the world. Have yeah. you been to Ethiopia? No, and I really uh, want to. The, I just uh, met up with another travel blogger. 
uh, we went and hiked up to Eagle, up Eagle Creek, Creek up yeah. Eagle Creek and swam in this gorgeous waterfall. And he was telling me about places that he's been and got me all excited about Ethiopia, for example. And he's got a good friend there that he wants to go stay with. And he traveled a little bit in, um, oh, I can't remember where he was. He was in Jordan and Israel and a couple other really interesting places in the Middle East. And the, I mean, just the food. I spent a month in Turkey last uh, yeah. last summer, and oh my gosh! I mean, just the most people have gardens in their front yard instead of a lawn. Yeah, and so you know you're you're having breakfast at someone's house, and they go out and pick tomatoes and yeah. cucumbers, and they've got a variety of cheeses and breads, and then they'll fry an egg for you, and like your mm. breakfast is just a spread of olive oil. Like uh, yeah, I yeah. fell in love with cheese over you oh, know yeah. over in the Mid- in the Mediterranean in Europe. Like you don't appreciate cheese in the U.S. You know, just cheese it's and wine. Dead. And, yeah, it's cheese, all wine, dead. And bread and these things are like. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I live in Spain most of the time, right? I've been in oh, Spain twenty two years. Oh, yeah, wow. oh awesome. yeah. We're only in the U.S. sort of passing through slowly, mm. um, but I've been based in Barcelona for twenty three, four years, something like that. Beautiful. And uh, I remember one night, Cassie and I were watching uh, this HBO series about Rome, mm. and. You know, we we had our normal sort of light Spanish dinner, you know, just we, pica pica, it's called in Spain, just like thing, you know, whatever, to eat a little cheese, a little bread, olive oil, some uh, olives and some, you know, vegetables, pickled this or, you know, whatever. And we're sitting there eating some red wine and we're watching this uh, Rome series and there's a scene, everybody's sitting around eating. And I realized they're eating exactly <laughs> the same thing we're eating, you know, and, and Romans were in Barcelona. Right. There are all these bars where you like you're sitting there and the wall next to you is built by the Romans. Right. You know, it, I love that kind of stuff. That style and, of eating, too. Yeah, it's, it's kind good of for the, you. The slow it's, picking, like making yeah. a, a thing of it, yeah. you know, versus like sitting down at a place, eating a bunch of food and then leaving. You know, just yeah. sitting down for a few hours and sipping wine and with friends, at, especially Spanish food like oh, cinco hotas, yeah. their are the serrano ham and the variety of cheeses, yeah. and they've got like tempranillo is such a good wine. Yep, and that's you know what seven euros a bottle for a decent tempranillo. Totally, yeah, yeah. I miss Spain. Um, have you you spent a lot of time in Spain? No, I was there for business. Uh, I was there for about a week. Oh, um, the wine thing. Yeah, wine right. stuff. So you, yeah. you're in Rioja. Uh, no, I was actually only in Barcelona and just had one meeting, but I stayed for about five days and just kind of hung out and ate a lot of great food and walked mm-hmm. around the city a lot and, you know, saw, saw the, the Gaudi stuff and all right. that. Um, it's a nice get, city to walk around. Did you get robbed? No, oh, I've never been robbed. Wow. Um, the reason I, I lived in Barcelona or live in Barcelona for so long is that I got robbed. I was you're talking about serendipity, right? I was on my way to Sevilla. Um, I probably, I think I've told this story before, so I'll keep it very short, but, um, my plan was, I was probably roughly your age and I, I was living in San Francisco with a girlfriend and it was kind of weird cause she was a stripper and I didn't know she was a stripper until I'd already arrived and then she told me and then I'm like what the fuck you could have told me on the phone when I called you from Paris instead you know waiting for me to show up with all my stuff and uh, anyway long story but uh so that relationship wasn't really working out and the only reason I was in the states was to be with her mm. so I'm like okay I, I'm what am I going to do so uh I had already been to Asia and I really wanted to keep traveling so uh 
my plan was this was 89, I think, and the Anyun Sung Chi had just won the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, the, the Burmese uh, independence. And there were all these, um, you know, countries were um, boycotting Burmese oil and the military dictatorship was toppling. It was about to go down. So my so I got a, one of those teaching certificates teaching English um, when you don't know the native language. Right. You know, so I got one of those in San Francisco and then I my plan was go to Sevilla and hang out in Sevilla, teach English you know, practice teaching English, learn some Spanish, make some friends because I had been traveling so much. I hadn't really had friends for a while, you know, and um, sort of stay there for a little while and wait for the Burmese government to fall. And then once the government falls, pack up my shit, go to um, Hungary and get the Trans-Siberian Railroad from Budapest to Beijing, which costs like $400 or something, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like super cheap. It's like, 14 days, 15 days or something on a train. Um, sorry, but I wanted to do that because you have to take all your own food on the train and you're just like camping on a train right. for two weeks, you know. Cool. And then I was going to go from Beijing down into Burma and be like one of the first Westerners yeah. in Burma since World War II, wow. you know, really, except for a very controlled tourism. That was my plan. I, so I, I flew into Paris where my buddy was living, hung out with him for a little bit. And then I thought, well, instead of just flying to Sevilla, I'll take a bus to Barcelona and then over to Madrid, spend a couple days in each of the cities, get to know it a little bit, and then go to Sevilla and start my life. Right? I had like five grand saved up or something, to, you know, seed money. And I got to Barcelona and the first night in Barcelona, someone distracted me and stole my bag and... You know, I had a I had a journal in there that I'd been oh, writing in for like three that years. Is brutal. Yeah, that's what hurt. That really does. But they got a passport. It was these fucking skinheads, man. It was there were all these skinheads hanging out, and uh, so I knew who did it. It wasn't like a violent mugging. It was no. You did, there are no violent muggings, really. Deal. No, it's just they distract you, and you know, I had a shoulder bag, and stupidly, I had it sitting next to me on the bench. It wasn't wrapped around my body. Mm. And there was there wasn't even money. There was like a camera, my passport, the journal. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's it. Like the like photos and journals are the most valuable thing to me. And know? it's before digital, so yeah. it wasn't like it's in, not in the cloud or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. I, I mean, the, you know, the the good side is you you mentioned earlier, like you know, with Facebook, you can keep in touch with people you run into. I had met this dude. I was in northern Mexico. Uh, I did this trip, like a long trip from, started in uh, El Paso down into Guatemala, all overland mm-hmm. through Mexico and Guatemala. is like nine months, mm-hmm. something like that. Wow. That's the one that ended with me, well, that included me getting stung by a scorpion while I was tripping on the Jaguar Temple in Tikal. That's, that was one of the highlights of my travel life. Um, but uh, on that trip, I went to the Barranca del Cobre, which is uh, Copper Canyon. It's, it's deeper and bigger than the Grand Canyon. Mm. It's in northern Mexico. And so I went down to the bottom to this little town called Bato Pilas, which you can't go to now because it's all drug gangs and, you know, impossible to travel there. But um, 
If you have you read the book Born to Run? Yes. Yeah. So that's Google. that's where he is, the oh. Tarahumara. Yeah. So I went down to this little town, Batopilas, which was on the river, and then I hiked up the river back into this canyon, and there's the Lost Cathedral, hmm. and it was this uh, Spanish church that had been built in the 1600s, I guess. And but now there's like no town. There's nothing there. There are a couple shacks that Indians live in, and it's the ruins of this Spanish church. So I hiked back to this thing. I came around the corner, and I saw there was this dude sitting up on the roof of this church. I'm like, wow, that how the fuck did he get up there? So I, I hiked down to the church, and I go in, and I saw there were these rocks you could climb up, and then there was like this, you know, like a log that you could sort of like shimmy up and work your way around. So I go up on this roof, and of course I'm feeling like I don't want to crowd this dude, you know, like he's got this amazing spot, but I want to get up there. <laughs> so I get up there, and he's really friendly, and I come over, and we, we talk, and he's a Spanish guy, Marcos Bescoa. And um, he... He gave me his sister's phone number in Barcelona, and he said because he was traveling. He's yeah. like, I don't have a house, I don't have a phone number, but if you're ever in Barcelona, call my sister if I'm in town, whatever. Awesome. So I get robbed. I've got to wait for a new passport, which is ten days or something. So I'm like, wait, don't I have that guy's number somewhere? I call him up, and he ends up being one of my best friends oh, to this day. You know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And he uh, shows me all around, shows me his favorite places, introduces me to all his friends. I start meeting all these women, and someone offers me a job, and someone else says, hey, I've got a spare room. You want to rent a room in a place? You know, whatever. Uh, and I'll teach you Spanish. And, uh, and it's like, whoa, what the fuck? So suddenly, you know, 20 years later, I'm still living in Barcelona. <laughs> right on. That's a cool synchronicity <laughs> So that story. shit happens, yeah. you know? It's, yeah, yeah. And I went back to the skinheads and I tried to get them to sell me back my journal. Hmm. They didn't like that. And so then they started harassing me and fucking with me. And um, I'm staying in this pension on uh, Plaza Royale. It's called down at the base of the Ramblas. And it was really sketchy in those days. This is before the Olympics when they cleaned everything up. And the port, which now is like really nice and where all the tourists go, that used to be junkies and Ghetto. yeah really you know and uh so the these two american soldiers show up in the pension i'm staying in the dorm you know the cheap mm-hmm. beds with everybody and these guys were on like a week r&r from iraq it's the first iraq war and um you know, they just like, hey, American, hey, American dude. And like, you know, these are not the kind of dudes I would ever know or hang out with, you right. know. But just the fact that I was American made them love me. Right. And they didn't speak any Spanish and neither did I really. But they, um, so I told them about some pizzeria that I liked. And they're like, come with us, dude. So I ended up telling them the story. And then we go back to the plaza and there are those skinheads. And these dudes are like, are those the, are there the people that are fucking with you? I was like, yeah, yeah, say, whatever. And those two, these two dudes just walked over and started like, what the fuck? You're fucking with an American? You don't fuck with it. And these skinheads are like, whoa. And they all get up and they've all got knives and shit. Like, oh no, what's happening? These two dudes just like beat the fuck out of like eight skinheads in about 20 seconds. It was like a Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> like, like these guys come out with a knife. And, oh. they, and I swear, I don't know if it's true, but I mean, in my memory, the two guys sort of looked at each other and smiled right. like, okay, let's, let's do, do it. And just 
they just fucking wiped the floor with those guys. Uh, it was amazing. Yeah, like sometimes having the skill of being able to fight really well can be. It's, it's, it's really, it's a really nice thing. It's a, it yeah. can free you up and, and free you up from fear in a lot of ways. Well, you know that was the thing. I mean, obviously they were in great shape and right. you know all that. But my what I felt watching that happen was, if someone pulls a knife on me, I'm almost going to be paralyzed by fear. Hmm. Someone pulls a knife on them, they're like, "Are you kidding? We were getting shot at three mm-hmm. days ago." Yeah, and they do probably a lot of knife training, so right. it's just like a lot of stress inoculation. Yeah, you know? so it's, yeah, so it didn't point, slow like, them down oh, or this again. Yeah, okay, yeah. I've, I've dealt with this a million times. Yeah, yeah. have you had any uh, real hairy kind of experiences along those? Lines? I um, I did get stabbed in Thailand. Oh. I was a. Uh, I was really drunk coming out of a bar in, in uh, Bangkok on Kosan Road, actually on the corner uh-huh. of uh, Gulliver's Bar, which is my favorite haunt when I hit that spot. Um, and there was a uh, a English guy who had this Thai girl up against the wall and was kind of like seemed like he was trying to rape her and yelling at her and all this stuff. So I like kind of casually walk over and I'm like, "Yo, hey, this isn't cool." Like kind of playing up my friendliness and drunkenness, so I didn't seem threatening. And the guy swung at me, and I grabbed him and put him up against the wall. I've I have fought a lot. I did a lot of like Muay Thai and Krav Maga and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and have done like training with military guys and stuff. Uh, so I ended up putting him up against the wall and, and like, listen, I don't want to kick your ass. I just want to like see what And I said, Hey, there's some cops right over there. I'm just trying to keep you out of trouble. And then I wasn't paying attention. His friend came up behind me and stabbed me right here. I've got a scar right along my ribs. Um, it didn't go in, so it didn't puncture my lung or anything like that, but basically cut through. And I thought I just got punched really hard. And so I like backed up and I was like, Oh fuck that hurt. And I look at my hand and I was wearing like a white shirt and just blood all down my shirt and leg and all over my hand. And I'd, at that point, I just backed up, and I was like, yo, guys, I don't really want any part of this. I ended up backing up, and luckily there's a police station nearby, and went to the hospital and got stitched up. That's the... I mean, I had a, also in Thailand over Songkran, which is the Buddhist New Year. Mm. I was uh, up in Lampang, which is... Uh, I've got a kind of a Thai adopted family that's in a village about an hour outside of Lampang. And uh, I was there with all the village boys, partying, and you know, like in the, in the main town there. And there's... No, tourists don't go there. I mean, the only thing that tourists go there for, they, they've got like a horse and carriage rides, but you just don't see a lot of white people there. And I was the only person that I saw. I saw one other white person that whole festival over the course of a couple of days. And at some point, there was a fight between my Thai friends and uh, and some other Thai people that were driving by in their, uh, in a car. And apparently, someone had thrown a beer bottle into their car. I didn't see any of this. And it wasn't our guys, because we're all drinking cans, but everyone's drunk, so no one pays attention to that stuff. I just kind of see the commotion outside that you know something's going on. Whenever I see something like that, especially when my friends are involved, I just I go over and I break up fights. Like, I don't, like, go and instigate and talk shit and someone calls me a faggot. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um... But yeah, I got right in the middle and then like basically to them, I was apologizing in Thai and saying, hey, happy new year. It's no, this is no problem. I'm really sorry. My friends are drunk. And to them, I was like, hey guys, fuck off. Like, like, let's have a good time. Let's not have a fight here. And they're all yelling at each other. I'm standing right in the middle and I pushed a couple of these, my, my kids back and these are all like young twenties. And then all of a sudden behind me are a gunshot. And turn around, and the guy that I that was closest to me, maybe ten feet away, has this big forty four magnum, 
pointed up in the air, like yelling in Thai. And I am not following what he's saying at this point, but you can clear, you can clearly tell by his body language. He's like, what's up now, motherfucker? Like, who's a big guy now? And you know, he wasn't looking at me cause I wasn't starting any shit. I was clearly a peacemaker in the situation. Everyone hit the ground and I'm just standing there totally frozen. I'm like, fuck, what do I even do in this situation? Like I, I, at first I just kind of thought, am I shot? No, I'm not shot. Uh, is anyone else shot? No, they're not shot. Is he pointing the gun at me? No. So I'm like trying to just kind of go through everything slows down, like in a fight movie, Mm. you know, like everything felt slow and just continue to apologize. And he ended up backing up, getting the car and taking off. Everything was fine. There was no, uh, you know, there was no thing further than that, but, you know, we ended up calling the cops and he could only get, cause they're like in a parade of cars moving slowly. They got arrested like 200 <laughs> yards down the road. They couldn't fucking get away. <laughs> Some good away. A yeah. Parade, yeah. A but parade like chasing. after that, I stopped doing sport fighting and I started learning Krav Maga because I do a lot mm. of weapons disarm stuff. So yeah. a lot of knife and stick and firearm disarm. So like I didn't have any framework to work like I just froze you know like what do you do when someone pulls a knife or tries to beat you with a bat or a chain or pulls a gun on you and puts it to your head like unless you practice that kind of stuff over and over and over to the point where it's like okay I know what to do you know like can be more calm but yeah I mean otherwise it's paralyzing the problem is that you know when you get to the point where someone's pulled out a weapon often it's too late hmm you know, I because I, I, I studied martial arts when I was young and um, but I mean, really young. I stopped when I was 15 when my teacher killed his father. Oof. Yeah, it was a heavy situation. Um, and so I've sort of, you know, I've thought about that a lot over the years and, you know, why I, I wanted to study. And a lot of it was what you and I were talking about earlier, that, you know, always being the outsider and not feeling safe and not having your community and your buddies to back you up and mm. all that. So... Because I felt vulnerable and um, uh, exposed in some way, that made me feel better. But as I look back on it now, I, after traveling, I kind of feel like, um, at least for myself, it's like uh, a false sense of comfort, hmm. uh, of safety because if somebody pulls a gun like if that guy was wanted to shoot you yeah it, it doesn't matter what training you have right you no know. if someone's standing 15 feet away and, sh- and no, nobody's faster than a bullet no one's right. bulletproof but right. you know uh and you know it's one thing to think you're a badass and walk around with that attitude because that's yeah. dumb yeah. you know a lot of times a lot of the guys that are just they're real fighters they end up looking for fights they just exude it you know like yeah. when all you've got is a hammer the whole world looks like a nail kind of right. thing um, and I definitely don't feel like I have that to any degree. I'm like really just, I want to be able to have skills that can keep myself and my loved ones safe. Well, and the thing is, I, I feel like the number one value of the kind of training you're talking about is not that it enables you to disarm someone. It's that if in that situation, you're able to keep calm and say the right thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you're not paralyzed, because you're somewhat familiar with scenarios like that, psychologically, you're more able to 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 just do the right thing. And, yeah. and like, you know, like you say, someone insults you. Fine. That's mm-hmm. OK. That's right. OK. Yeah. All right. Whatever. 
Because, yeah, these, I mean, I, you heard, you mentioned earlier the thing of my knife and the boot and the guy who picked me up in prison, the prison warden and all that. That really stuck in my head, like, wait a minute, you know, no, I, I'm not going to defend myself with a knife. If I'm going to defend myself, it's going to be by thinking a little faster and clearer than the other guy. Yep. That's, that's really all I can hope for. Yeah, cra- crazy shit. Thailand's a, an interesting country. I really like Thailand. And it generally feels very safe. Yeah. But when shit goes wrong, it can go very wrong. Yeah, especially, I mean, if you're a white person and you get into it with a Thai person, it's going to be a big problem because all the Thai guys will jump on you. Yeah. You know, it's like they're very uh, nationalistic and other like they'll support each other. And you know, there's not any one-on-one fights between a white guy and a Thai guy. Well, and you're going to be twice the size of anyone. Yeah, well, anyway, true. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. There's a lot of kickboxers there too, though. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, do you know that, uh, you're into kickboxing, you know that transgender kickboxing? Oh, yeah, uh, uh, I saw the movie, uh, 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 something like Pretty Bo- Beautiful Boxer yeah. is the movie. Yeah, yeah. I've I, never I, seen the movie, I, I read about. It's very good. Him she was incredible. She, yeah. Like, she wiped Champion, up the floors right? with everyone, yeah. 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 Amazing. <laughs> That's a great stereotype breaker. Yeah, or, or or enforcer in some way. I mean, the fact oh, that yeah. the whole transgender tie thing is so interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, like also like marijuana. The marijuana that is most likely to go uh, hermaphrodite is Thai. Really? Yeah, it's very strange. Marijuana growers, like professional growers, don't like growing Thai because it'll fuck up their crop. Because you'll have a plant that looks like a female that'll like be shooting out spores before you wow. know it. Oh, yeah, it's a very high risk uh, uh, weed to grow huh. commercially. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if there's something in the water or what. It's yeah. it's a very interesting sort of confluence of uh, two completely separate things that end up in the same place somehow. So uh, where where are you going next? What's what's the plan? Uh, so I, you have uh, on? yeah, headed across the south of the U.S. I am spending about two months in California, and then uh, I've been in Oregon for about a week now, down up through Crater Lake, and then uh, to the hot springs, then up the coast. Crater Lake's great, beautiful. Huh? Oh, so nice. And, and do you have a tent? Yeah, I have a, okay. I travel with a like a two person ultralight. It's you know, it's like a three and a half pound tent and then I have a sleeping bag and a real small sleeping pad and then, you know, if I go out for long then I'll take either I'll usually cook on fires and mm. um occasionally we'll take a tiny little uh jet uh what's it called? Jet jet fuel or jet burner or something like that and uh you know sometimes do mres and just boil water and throw it in there and that's dinner uh but yeah i mean i have everything that i need and end up sleeping outside a lot you know i only throw the tent if it's gonna if i think it's gonna rain otherwise i prefer bugs yeah yeah bugs can be a thing um especially because my bag's pretty warm so if i'm sleeping in a warm place i sometimes have to choose between sweating all night or getting bit up uh end up uh, i had to do that recently end up choosing getting bit up mm. but uh it's you a know tough choice yeah <laughs> but i mean at least here you don't have to worry about you know, malaria, malaria so much yeah. it's you know it's just more it's it's annoying so you you just cover yourself with some some of your clothes and put a t-shirt over your face and do the best you can to sleep yeah, yeah. it's all right but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I just travel around with everything that I need and really nothing else. I've got, like, these clothes I'm wearing. I've got another pair of pants and a pair of shorts, and that's it. A couple pair of socks and underwear. That's eh, nice, man. That's such a luxury yeah. parrot bag. You ever read Walden Thoreau? I haven't read it, no. Okay. you got to read that. Yeah. Because it's, it's the classic 
you know, the, the sort of the first expression of the wisdom of simplicity hmm. of like, you know, get away from society. Yeah, he was a huge counterculture guy too. 1840s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Really interesting guy. Uh, and it's such a beautiful book about, about, you know, the motivation that got you out, that got me out, that got him out. I remember there's this passage where it, it's a, it's a chapter called like, where, where I live and what I live for, or something like that. And, and I remember there's this section where he says, I wanted to drive life into the corner and reduce it to its principles. Wow. You know, and, and, you know, if it, if it was, if it's ugly and mean, then let me see it's it, the depth of the ugliness yeah, and search for truth. It was like, give it to me, give it to me straight doc. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to, at least once in my life, I want to see what's real, yeah. you know, because we accumulate all this bullshit around us all the time. Yeah. You can't see out through it sometimes. Yeah, like dirty glasses or something. So you're, uh, all right, so you're oh, on yeah. this so, trip. So We're- I'm headed north. I'm going to head up into Washington Olympic Peninsula and then probably head across the top of the U.S. I'm not sure if I'm going to Burning Man this year. I'm leaving that to a last-minute decision. But um, go across through Idaho and Montana. I lived in mm. western Montana. Nice. After that, I don't really have too much plan. I might drop down into um, Utah and Colorado and then maybe back up into South Dakota and visit some of my friends on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Mm. Got some connections there. Like, kind Do of you know Daniele Bolelli? Mm-hmm. Do you know he is? He's a podcaster, friend of Duncan Trussell and oh, okay. Joe Rogan and okay. part of that crowd. Cool. He's His mother... Um, it's worked with the, the Pine Ridge Reservation for a long time, wrote a book about a guy she knew there. Um, he, if you need more connections, huh. like yeah, she's yeah, been yeah, like 20 years, she's been oh, cool. connected to the, I guess it's Lakota, Lakota right? yeah, yeah. yeah, that That is the Oklahoma Lakota. So the, um, when I was a teenager up in Western Washington, that kind of wilderness community, it was called Wilderness Awareness School, and they've got like a community school program mm. for high school students. And there were a couple of medicine men from there because very closely connected to native culture kind of generically. But then um, there were two medicine men, Godfrey Chips and then Gilbert Walking Bull came out and um, uh, they lived up on the property where the school was. And every week would run Inipi, sweat lodge ceremonies and sacred Chinupa, sacred pipe ceremonies. And so I learned all the Inipi songs and all the Chinupa songs and every week for years I went and, and kind of participated in those ceremonies and w- went out to Pine Ridge and visited some families out there and friends with Tony Tenfingers and probably end up staying with him and his family. You know, they live in like a 15 by 20 house with 10 people living in there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a real tragic situation. And you know, I think it's the biggest Indian reservation and maybe the poorest zip code in the U.S., something like that. It's a highest real tragedy. alcoholism. Yeah, highest I mean, the suicide. highest everything that's associated with poverty and, yeah. you know, and violence and teen yeah. pregnancy and, uh, you know, you can't find jobs. There's really no opportunity. It's, it's totally tragic. Yeah. Um, but really beautiful culture. Uh, you know where it exists in little pockets and 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 any influence anyone that i know that kind of has grown up there and has a a healthy life has a life that's rooted in their culture you know in their traditions and in their kind of philosophy and it's really beautiful and i like to you know i want to go and visit and maybe do out do a ceremony out and reconnect with them what did you think about uh, your experiences in Brazil with the uh, ayahuasca? Well, 
actually was introduced to ayahuasca as a young teenager, mid, maybe 14, the first time I did it. And I've only done it maybe 10 times between 14 and when I went down there this, this last time. But I feel like that probably played a big role in who I am today as far, because you really end up questioning a lot of things and right. seeing through a lot of kind of societal, uh, kind of bullshit filters. Um, and yeah, for me, it's, it's very, um, I mean, it feels like therapy in a way you end up kind of seeing things how they are and you end up seeing yourself in a different light and very objectively. And there's just, uh, around all of this, there's an overwhelming compassion and empathy and real humanness that, uh, it's the most, the only reason I consider myself spiritual in any way is from my experiences with that. You know, without, besides that, I consider myself a pretty, uh, like a rational skeptic. I'm really very into questioning and logic and figuring out what's real and what's not. And, you know, I'm, I'm really against, uh, superstition, which pervades in culture in so many different ways. Mm. Uh, you know, whether it be, you know, religion or astrology or anything like that. Economics. I, uh, yeah. So, um, I feel like that also kind of helped push me out of society. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I'm with and, you, you know, like I, it, maybe it's a coincidence that I, I probably dropped out of school within a year or two of doing ayahuasca for the first time. Uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly what led to that decision, but I think it probably played a role. Um, I think, did you feel... I, I didn't do hallucinogens till I was in college, so I was 19. Um, but did you feel, how to describe this? First time I, I did hallucinogens, it was mushrooms, mm-hmm. Halloween night, 1980. And I felt like I've been here before. Yes. This is, I know this world. Yeah. This is the real world. Yes. It's, it was like all that other shit's a dream and this is real. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You felt that. Absolutely. And that, I, th- I think then that, that's maybe just, just another way of saying what you just said, which is that it, it, push, it doesn't push you out of normal society, but it confirms your sense that this is an artificial construct mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah, I'll never forget that feeling. That was a really powerful, like, holy shit, wow, I'm here again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there is that sense of, like, a recognition of something that almost feels like before you were born. Yeah. Yeah. Some deeper truth that you forget about when you're awake for too long. Mm -hmm. So when you were at these ayahuasca, you went to a center? No. So, uh, this is a kind of a unique experience there. It's a gathering of shaman from a bunch of different medicine traditions in South America. So there was, uh, a couple guys from the, the Kashinawa tribe from Western Brazil. There was the Umbandaime, uh, uh, tradition, which is rooted, has its roots in Africa, the African tradition of Umbanda, which is like spiritual possession. And uh, there is a, um, a guy from Peru. There was a guy from Colombia. And we had a peyote shaman come down from uh, 
the southwest of the U.S. and it's called a eagle eagle condor, and it's a gathering of medicine from both North and South America, the mm. eagle and the condor, right. and supposedly fulfilling an ancient tradition of gathering of the gathering of native people and, and the medicine traditions from both uh, continents. And uh, yeah, it, it, all of my experiences with ayahuasca before had been very personal. It was uh, uh, either me with my dad or me solo and that so this was very strange for me to be around a bunch of other people right uh and you know it was really really interesting to be exposed to for example the umbandaime is uh like they have a lot of music and dancing and you know they have this temple that they built out in the out in the jungle and totally beautiful um and it was a different experience for sure than, you know, lying alone in the dark with your eyes closed and kind yeah. of going, flying through the universe and seeing God, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, um, it was, you know, really interesting. And, uh, I still was able to get some personal insights as to, you know, kind of working through some things that I, I needed to work through. You know, so I got, you know, some personal stuff and a lot of it was really heavily steeped in empathy. Uh, you know, like, for example, I would go like have people from my past come into my consciousness really strongly. People that I've loved that are no longer in my life, ex-girlfriends that I've never, you know, I have no contact with, never, you know, my first loves and, and they, each of them came to me at different points and I really loved and appreciated them and thanked them for being in my life. And, you know, I, and afterwards I ended up reaching out to the ones that I could and, you know, to people that I've wronged. Um, I really wanted to make amends for that. Yeah, so it felt very healing. And also, like, a empathy for myself, which was surprising. Um, you know, because I tend to be really hard on myself and be very judgmental on, you know, of, of, of a lot of things in my past. And I was able to kind of step outside of my own perception of myself and see myself from a third-party objective. Like, see myself in very traumatic tradition, uh, very traumatic situations as a child. And instead of remembering it through my eyes as it happened, seeing it almost as if I was in the room watching mm. and like have so much compassion for myself mm. in those situations. I feel like it, and it almost like it goes into your brain, you go into your brain and you go through, you open a closet that's of things you've forgotten and things that, you know, aren't on the surface of your day to day mind. And you take these out and you're like, these are pretty solidified memories. And you go through and you take out all these folders and you reevaluate and you reposition and you pack them up in a different way and you put them back. You know, it's all, it's, it's going through the filing cabinets of your mind, spilling everything out. And then especially as you're kind of coming out of the experience and your mind, you start to see your mind put itself back together and your ego reconstruct itself, but a little bit differently. Mm. Yeah. I think it's really positive. I think it's really positive and it definitely have, I mean, I don't, I don't have a heroin addiction or anything like that, but it can be really beneficial for people who have negative patterns in their life that they're trying to break. And I, I have talked to some people that were down there that were working through that type of stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, probably in a, in a similar way that I did, but, you know, working through negative patterns in your life and, and kind of rebuilding the, t- rebuilding. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good way of putting it. Like going through and reframing things and, and reconstructing them in, in a way that includes forgiveness. Yeah. Which, you know, 
I have a friend in, in Spain who's a clinical psychologist and, um, he and I met at an MDMA conference in Israel in 1999. And uh, he was doing his doctoral research using MDMA and psychotherapy with uh, women who had been sexually abused yeah. and hadn't responded to any other kind of treatment. And a lot of these women were suicidal and, and really, really fucked up by the experience. And, you know, the the whole point of the research that he's doing is... That with MDMA, because it reduces the, um, the fear that the women experience, a lot of times they'll have flashbacks and they'll, they'll have these terrible PTSD symptoms because they're so afraid of thinking about it, right? Mm. But what they really need to do is think about it again, mm. but to reframe it in their own way, um, in a way that they don't blame themselves mm, often. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, that's kind like... of the key. And uh, so the, the success that he had, amazing success with this research, was based on using MDMA to allow them to do that. And it's exactly the same process, I think, that happens with hallucinogens. Mm. Although hallucinogens don't necessarily take the fear away. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> it can, it can sometimes be very be terrifying. Oh, yeah. my gosh. I was <laughs> The first time I did acid, I was in Kathmandu last summer. <laughs> And ended up wandering around the streets of Kathmandu all night with a small group of friends. And, oh, my gosh, there was some point that was we, – we ended up going up and uh, finding our way to the Monkey Temple, which is on the top of this hill there. I'm not sure if you've been to yeah. Kathmandu. Yeah, yeah, so we went up at night, and so there's no one there. There's just feral dogs and crazy monkeys. Yeah. And it was, like, pretty sketchy, you know, so I was, like, carrying a stick and some rocks just in case. But uh, ended up – everyone was afraid to go up, but I went up first, and then uh, – basically got to explore this gorgeous temple that was there's a picture on my instagram of me up in there and uh you know there's like barking dogs all over the place monkeys shaking the trees and it's like this is so real and intense and i'm in Kathmandu, and like everything <laughs> yeah. was just you know I, i've never taken a lot of acid i took a very small amount but just enough that everything is just weird everything is a little weird that's you know. so i i wonder how the monkeys I've always felt that animals can tell when I'm tripping. I, I really agree. The first time I took mushrooms, my dad took me to a circus. Oh, oh, that doesn't sound good. Actually. It was actually amazing. Really? Yeah. As we uh, sounds so sad. I uh, well, the uh, as I was walking around the big top, um, there was a lion in, or sorry, a tiger in a cage, and I, I had I had a kitten at the time. I got really good at making eye contact in a certain way that would make 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 him attack me. You know, like get, oh. like put his put his ears down and like start to talk. I could just I could stalk. I could just look at him in a certain way, and I'm looking at this tiger who's sleep like sleeping casually, you know, lazy, and uh, like we make eye contact, and I was just starting to feel it come on, and I didn't know that I I mean I had taken mushrooms, but I had. I didn't really know what was going to happen. Right. And, um, and all of a sudden this tiger looks at me and we make eye contact and it puts its ears down and then lunges at the cage and roars and sticks its arm through. And I'm like, oh, what just happened? But totally it had to have known, you know, like yeah, it felt there, the energy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that is, but it certainly felt like there was something there. Well, you know, the animals are, 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 that's their language. You know, they're dealing with energies all the time. I, yeah. I've had all these crazy experiences with otters. 
really? when I was tripping. Once in Alaska and once, uh, actually, I was camping out beside that river in, in northern Mexico that I was talking about, in Batu Pilas. Yeah, and otters are just like, hey, who are you? And wow. they're, like, they're all just hanging out and completely fearless. And, mm. you know, because they're such smart, curious little Yeah, they things. are. I love otters. Yeah. I have a really interesting experience with otters. They, uh, so they're in the weasel family, which is like a very ferocious animal. Yeah. You know, wolverines, yeah. for example, and honey badgers Badger. and all that. Yeah, exactly. Well, honey badger don't care. <laughs> I mean, wolverines they'll take on they'll take on a group of wolves to to, yeah. to steal an, an elk kill. I've seen you yeah. know National Geographic back in the day when Marty Stauffer did that. Like, <laughs> like yeah. you see this wolverine come yeah. up to a pack of wolves that had taken down an elk and just very casually comes up and starts eating, and the wolves start you know snarling at it and snapping at it, and all of a sudden it just switches from this like casual little dorky looking weasel bear to this wolverine like the x-men hero just like a fearless motherfucker with huge claws that just starts snarling and spitting and the wolves are eventually like fuck this like i don't want to deal with this psychopath and like takes the kill but anyway so a friend of mine his dog was attacked by otters while he was swimming in the in in the in in the lake like he had chased the otters out into the lake and then they swam off and then all of a sudden disappear under and the dog went under they like pulled Uh, it under like jaws and then all of a sudden the dog comes up and is yelping and comes out and is all like cut up so I was in Western Washington. Uh, this is right before an Inipi ceremony, a sweat lodge ceremony with Gilbert Walking Bowl, and there was snow on the ground. And I went down to this lake that I used to sit by for an hour every day in silence. And the lake was called Lindorn, which in Gaelic means otter pond. And uh, there were some otters there, and I always had seen tracks and trails, but they were rarely in the pond. And it was an, a mother, and I had seen them when the babies were pups, but now they were kind of mid-sized. And I, I uh, stalk down through the snow, take off all my clothes, and then find one spot where there's not too much ice and, like, sneak into the water because they're all up um, taking a nap in the sun on a, on a log. So I'm, like, trying to sneak up. I want to touch them. That was, like, always my thing. I wanted to sneak up and touch <laughs> wild animals. That uh-huh. was, like, how I would test my oh, like kind of counting nature. Coup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I'm getting close, and then I'm about eight feet away, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm shivering in the water. It was ice and uh, uh, making some ripples on, I guess the mother senses me and all of a sudden wakes up and pokes her head up and starts looking at me and is just moving around like a cobra, like moving around like this and that, like trying to triangulate me and figure out what's going on. All of a sudden wakes up the other two and they're all looking around and looking at me and I'm just like remembering this story about killing the dog and I'm thinking of Wolverines (laughs) and I'm like, oh, what am I doing right now? (laughs) I'm like, maybe this is a bad idea. And then they go underwater, they dive into the water and all of a sudden, because their fur traps air bubbles and that's how they stay buoyant and stay warm. And so I see these trail of air bubbles coming towards me. And it's like a shark fin <laughs> and there's three traveling in like, in like a triangle, like a jet fighters coming right at me. And I'm just like, no, holding perfectly still. And two pass to one side and the other one passes on the other side. And I feel the water displacement on my, on my leg. It just almost touches me. And as soon as they pass me, I just like bolted, get the, like I was in deep mud, like struggling, getting out of the water. I'm coming out of mud. I'm like, oh. wow. and all of a sudden I hear from across the lake, I hear this really deep laugh, like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Gilbert Walking Bull, the uh, Lakota oh, shaman right. was down. He had gone for a walk and he had seen the whole thing. <laughs> and then he's like, there's an Inipi fire on the top of the hill. And so I go up and I'm sitting next to the fire to warm up and he comes up and he's still laughing and he comes and tells the story and he tells everyone that's there. And then he tells a story about when they used to catch badgers on the reservation and they caught this one badger 
or they had hit it in the car or something like that, and it was stunned. They put it in the back seat, and somehow it woke up, and they're driving this, like, <laughs> shitty little pickup truck down the res, and this badger wakes up and starts, like, tearing the seats apart and all this, and they had to stop and get out, and the badger jumps out and runs away. Yeah. No, weasels are weasels and cats are the only, like, real full carnivores in, in the mammals, you know. Like, wolves and bears are omnivores. They're not they're, they're just... They're, there's something about the weasels and the cats that are, you know... They're real hardcore full predators. Yeah, but otters are just adorable as well. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're curious. You yeah, know, they're, 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 they seem really smart. Yeah, yeah. And what I, I mean, I was with these two friends of mine. We were uh, camping along this wild river in near Kenai in Alaska, and uh, <laughs> and we'd taken some acid. And I remember. <laughs> We were so because I always had this acid and sewn into my back. It's in every story. <laughs> well, it was for special occasions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like you know, some people have champagne, you know? but uh, I I remember f- we were so so high, and we had this beautiful fire, and somebody threw a lighter in the fire, and it made this nice explosion, and then oh, let me do, and then we realized we don't have any lighters left. And, <laughs> You know, what are we doing? Like, it's just dumb shit. <laughs> anyway, so, but we're next to this rushing, you know, glacial Alaskan river. And I heard this, like, barking. And I look out, and there are all these otters. Oh, wow. and they're, but the river was going so fast, and they were just, like, still, you know, Whoa. right in the middle of the current, looking at us, you know, periscoping. Yeah. And then they'd go under, and then they'd pop up. And, but, like, they must have been just underwater, just paddling so hard to just stay stable. And, uh, yeah, it, it just felt like, you know, when you, when you said there was laughter, I thought the otters were laughing because uh, it seemed like <laughs> those otters were very playful. Yeah. You know, you get yeah. to like, they look like they're having such a great time yeah. just sliding over stuff and just wriggling around yeah. and sea otters laying on their backs, cracking yeah. oysters on their bellies. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Well, listen, man, I, we, I, we got a roll cause I have to take my wife to her art class and stuff, but I have to say this. I was a little worried that you were going to be a narcissist. Oh. I have to tell you because you're super good looking. You're a great photographer. You're like traveling in all these amazing places. You know, you obviously see your life as a movie, and you're the star of the movie and yeah, all that stuff. I do. Um, but I'm really glad to see you're not. You're Thank you. you're a really nice guy. I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. It's a really nice compliment. Yeah. I appreciate so and and I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. Um, if you were a narcissist, I would just uh, not mention it. <laughs> 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 no, but it's good. But it's, you know, it is, it can, you can easily become a narcissist because everybody you meet thinks they want to have your life, but they're not lucky enough or brave enough or, and you hear over and over again, oh, dude, you know, you're doing it. Oh, you're doing And you can start, it's almost like being famous. You start mm-hmm. hearing the bullshit that people are saying to you and you can forget that they don't know. Mm-hmm the yeah. cost you pay you don't they don't know how lonely it gets and mm-hmm. you know that it's not just what it looks like on instagram mm. you know there's a yeah lot totally of- and, you know my i my instagram or social media i've i've kind of come to accept because i at first i was very weird about sharing because i'm like well who the fuck do you think you are like why are you so cool that you should just like have a blog for example and i haven't blogged you know i, I rarely do and i i even struggle now you know, like maybe I should just do my, live my life and just keep it to myself. But mm. there's something nice to share who you are with the world. And yeah. I feel like what I'm doing is I'm living out the life of 
my heroes and I'm sharing my heroic self and I'm doing it on purpose and I'm not sharing when I take a shit I don't take a picture of that or me picking my nose I'm just like here's me doing things that I love and that feel like truly authentic me and yeah I think about you know I don't want to be I I don't want to be self-absorbed narcissist uh you know and 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 I feel weird posting a selfie of me riding a motorcycle like I don't know I, I think about this a lot and you know so, but they're they're good photographs, though, and that, I think that's part of it. It's hmm. not just like here's me in another cool place. It's like that that's an artfully framed photograph. You've taken time. The light's nice. You know the posing. You're in the right position. You've got things in the background in the foreground. You know it's you're creating art. It's, that's it's not just recording. trying to live art. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a poetic life. Well, you know the Toma, the Talking Out My Ass podcast I mentioned earlier is. When I was traveling a lot, I was writing stuff down in my journal, and I, I took photographs, but it was film, you know, back in the day, and I, uh, so it was a whole different thing, you know. And, um, and I, my feeling was always like I'm accumulating experiences and memories and things that I'll someday give back somehow, mm. whether it's telling stories to kids or, you know, writing books or whatever it ends up being. I'm taking this big inhalation in this part of my life and at some point it'll become an exhalation. And that's sort of what I'm doing with the, the Toma podcast. And so I think about the things you're thinking about too, because here I am taking my very personal experiences and turning them into a thing that's out in the world and, you know, People can send in donations if they like it. And so it's sort of a, almost a commercial product. Yeah, it and feels weird. It sometimes. feels weird. And also, like, I'm 53, I think I am now. And it's like, there's the, as we started, said at the beginning of this, there's this feeling of like, like oh, now I'm the, the guy in his 50s telling stories about when he was in his 20s. So there's, a, there's like a closing of a chapter hmm. feeling to it as well, which... I don't really love because, uh, like, maybe when I tell the last story, I'll die. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you there's can some keep making them though. Yeah, I know that's yeah. the thing. Gotta gotta stop talking in and, between books. Do yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've got an, actually an idea for a book that's based on um, doing five completely new things in my fifties. Mm. You know, like learn to fly from a bush pilot in yeah, Alaska. That's awesome. Yeah. You can write as you go. Well, yeah. And and so four of them will be like learn a new thing in a, in a, like, like fly in Alaska, like maybe learn, like I, I can't dance for shit. So like maybe learn to dance in Cuba or, yeah. or Colombia. Yeah, I want to go to Jamaica for that. Oh, Jamaica. Yeah. I yeah. love, I love like dance hall and the way that like Jamaicans get down. I've got a really good Jamaican friend who wants to take me down there. There you go. And so you got character development, you got travel, you got all this stuff. But then the fifth thing is going to be some sort of a journey. Mm. Right. And not necessarily any sort of heroic, epic, you know, crossing the Alps or something, but maybe like an extended trek in Nepal or floating down the Mekong on Mm. a raft or um, even like the Camino de Santiago in Mm. Spain, you know, just because... When you're on the road, you meet people who are self-selected. We started talking about this earlier. That's the th- that's another thing people don't don't recognize. Sometimes it doesn't even fucking matter where you are. It's just the fact that you're out means the people sitting next to you on the bus, they're going to be interesting people. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they're and they're also you know sort of counterintuitively people who have a lot of really interesting experiences uh tend to listen more hmm. you know what i mean because they're like they've done it they've been there so they want to hear where you've been mm-hmm. and and it's you can have really deep connections with people yeah i was just having this conversation yesterday when uh talking about one of my favorite things in the world is late late night conversations that go all night where you end up a lot of times as someone you've just met and you're sitting around and sipping tea or smoking cigarettes and just like telling stories about your life and yeah. and, and it's like getting to know somebody and, and you end up talking about the most real shit yeah love and heartbreak and struggle and joy in very real authentic conversations and it's not like bullshit small talk that you know like that that most human interactions are you know that are just kind yeah. of pleasantries uh but that's connecting with people on that way is one of my favorite things those late they just go all night and the sun's coming up and you're like wow that that went all night i wish that had been recorded because that would make you know a great chapter in a book you should do a podcast man yeah maybe i should i've thought about that like because you know when i finish this book we're going to be on the road for a while then we're going to be in spain i've got some different things i want to do in spain and then we're going to set up probably in the canary islands i want to go to the cantabria which is in the north uh on the atlantic and it's where there's a huge concentration of prehistoric cave sites cave have you ever been to prehistoric cave art uh i've seen them in france but it uh yeah yeah so you know what i'm talking about so there are lots of those that are like four or five that are really famous Uh so if there are four or five that are famous there are a hundred that aren't right So I want to go there, meet the locals, and have them show me some places and, you know, spend nights, spend weeks sitting in a place where people were camping, you know, 20,000 years ago. So cool. Yeah. So that's one thing I want to do. But, but, you know, I've been thinking, like, with the podcast, first I was thinking, well, it kind of sucks. I'm going to be on the road. It's going to be a hassle. And I was like, fuck no, man. I'll meet people on the road. That'll mm-hmm. be real. Take oh, the yeah. show on the road. Totally. So you get one of these things, one of these recorders, you can just do it. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, right. we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, this was really so good. And I think it's going to be um, inspirational for a lot of uh, listeners. So tell us again where they can see your stuff, read so your blog, you never my update. My blog is adventuresofjustin.com. I should, I'm going to try to put a... Uh, something about what I'm doing right now. I'm working on a video and, you know, put together a little blog for that adventures of Justin.com. Or if you do Instagram or Facebook, it's just Instagram adventures of Justin one word, or you can do facebook.com slash adventures of Justin. If you want to find me. And then if you're going to add me on Facebook, send me a message first. Cause I don't really add people that if I don't know them, but if you're like, Hey man, I think you're cool. Like, let's be friends. I'll totally accept you. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, I just don't, I, I don't want to see everyone's new. I'm very selective of the type yeah. of news that I want to put in my life and I end up accepting I, yeah, everyone yeah. and then it just becomes a mess. So I, I did a calling, um, you know, because I was, I had all these people on there. I don't know who the fuck they yeah, are. It's like, and, I want my Facebook to be people that I actually like yeah. and know and yeah. not just kind of random people. But, uh, I'm, if you, if someone wants to email me adventures of Justin at yahoo.com and you know, I'm totally fine having a conversation about important stuff or if you want to hang out somewhere i'm riding around the u.s or you know, i don't know where i'll be at when you listen to this but uh i'm definitely love meeting people who who uh are like-minded individuals do you tell some um, fun do you accept naked pictures from uh <laughs> yes from accepting naked pictures adventures of justin.com all right i have some great. pictures as well 
<laughs> we can trade. <laughs> yeah, as I said, there's a there's a really nice picture I posted on my Instagram account of Justin sitting on his bike with a copy of Sex at Dawn. You can find that in my my thing. All right, thanks, Justin. This was great. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Justin Alexander. I um, when I was putting this together, I sort of bounced around to make sure the sound quality was good and everything. And it seemed like every place I put the cursor, um, I was talking. So I apologize for that. I guess I was excited hanging out with Justin. He's, I don't know if it's cause he, he's more quiet or I just was feeling loquacious that day or what, but, um, so yeah, it seemed like uh, there was a lot more of me talking than him talking, which is not good. So I'll try to <laughs> try to be aware of that in the future. Uh, anyway, it was really cool hanging out with Justin. Hope you enjoy the conversation and I hope we'll catch you next week. Since Justin was in a band, Punch Face, and he uh, gave me an MP3 of one of their songs, I'm going to play you out with a song called Liberate by Punch Face rather than the the normal Carsey Blanton smoke alarm. You can always listen to Carsey Blanton stuff at her site, carseyblanton.com. But this is Liberate by Punchface with Justin Alexander on vocals. See you next week.
Tonight I 